everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for March 28th, 2023. Sorry it's coming out a couple days late. I spent the weekend in Anaheim at WonderCon, had a really good time, saw a lot of creators, talked to a lot of friends, but uh, as a consequence of that, we weren't able to record at our usual time. So coming out a few days late, but it's a huge week. 14 titles we're going to talk about, and I think there's actually 15 or 16 individual uh, floppies. I'm never a big fan when it's this many books out at once. Um, I still think in a lot of ways DC's putting out too much content, but at the same time, I'm not going to say that, you know, there shouldn't be a Hawk man or Hawk woman title or a green arrow title or something like that. So I mean, at the end of the day, it just comes down to the fact that DC's got a ton of characters and some of the B list characters deserve to have books once in a while, you know, Firestorm's another one doesn't have a book right now. Um, I mean, Green Lantern doesn't have a book right now. It's crazy. I mean, I know it's coming, but uh, yeah, when you have these weeks like this, um, it, it's just, it feels overwhelming and it's hard to really appreciate some of the stuff. Um, and I feel like it kind of gets lost, but I guess it's a good problem to have in a lot of ways, because I think there are yeah. a lot of quality stories here, but yeah, I mean, it's funny, like some of the long running titles that you would expect to be good. Detective Comics uh, are, are, are some of the worst things out this week. So I don't know. Yeah. What did you think about the week overall, Rocky? Well, the thing is when you have, the, there's a lot of comic books that came out this week for DC, but uh, I think that uh, the vast majority, I would say probably 99% of people don't read all of them that come out like you and I do and, and a couple handful of other sites. Uh, the reality is that if you're collecting the mainstream DC universe, there's probably five or six this week that you wouldn't read because it's not part of the mainstream. But then you got some out of continuity stories that you could read. Uh, you got a Waller versus Wildstorm. We're going to be reviewing the, today, uh, what, you know, which is Black Label, which you can enjoy joy and not read anything else so you know there there are you know there, there are ways most people who read comics sort of break them up you and i are i guess are some of the few diehards that we are at we actually challenge ourselves to read all of them but uh it's uh i, I don't know there's there's definitely an advantage to it i guess we we get uh the advantage is that we get to read them all and stay current and the disadvantage is, is that when some of them are really bad we it sometimes we have to you know we have to endure it but uh, it's all. <laughs> anyway, let's get yeah, to that's it. A good way. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. We have to endure it 100%. That's what I'm saying. Like, if we weren't reading everything, if we were just focused on one particular sort of corner, um, you know, we might have more time to sort of think about it and digest it and, and read it in context. And then maybe it would feel different, you know? So, anyway, uh, that being said, let's kick it off. Blue Beetle graduation day. Uh, chapter five or part five uh josh trujillo is the writer adrian uh, adrian gutierrez is the artist will quintana on colors lucas gatoni on letters got a chance to meet josh in person finally at wondercon uh and he gave me a little i guess you'd say sneak peek i mean i already had the press preview but i hadn't looked at it yet uh of jaime reyes getting a new costume here so that's really cool i like what josh is doing in terms of maturing Jaime. He and I talked about it at the show, how Jaime's always been a character where he continually makes mistakes and supposedly he learns from them, but then, you know, he, he's kind of never maturing. He's never aging up. He's always kind of that young hero that's going to make mistakes. I mean, this guy's been around since Infinite Crisis, which, I mean, that's like 20 years ago now, almost. So, um, but, yeah. you know, at the same time, you, you want to mature characters you want them to grow and evolve, but you also 
can't have too many characters that are kind of up at the top because then you, in terms of maturity, because then you have to create new characters to be that, to fill that role, right? Of kind of the young hero that's learning on the job. And then you get some that are stuck in the middle. And we talked about that a lot with Young Justice and, you know, where Tim Drake is and Connell and, you know, those characters, Bart Allen from Impulse. It's like they don't, DC doesn't know what to do with them now because so many of them have been replaced with, uh, you know, yet another young generation. So it's a tough balance, right? As a creator, you want to tell a story and have a character arc and have the characters grow and evolve. But, you know, when it comes to Jaime, maybe not too much. He can't learn too much because then he's not filling that role of, you know, young kid that makes a mistake. But you don't want to stay there too long either because then it, it becomes stagnant as a character and it becomes boring. So it's a tough challenge. But um, I do like this issue. I, I liked how Jaime got a chance to sort of push back and call out, you know, very veteran members of the Justice League and say, hey, I know what's going on here. You don't. You need to listen to me. Um, and to their credit, the Justice League, you know, backed him up at the at the end, finally. Um so yeah, interesting to see what will uh, come of this in the finale now that the horizon has finally uh, arrived on Earth. So um, as far as the art goes from Adrian uh, Gutierrez, I felt it was a little looser, this issue. I felt a little more manga influenced. Um, so you know, just, just from my own personal preference, it wasn't as clean. I didn't enjoy it as much as previous art, but it's still very dynamic. And the color work um, by Will Quintana is fantastic. So Uh, What were your thoughts on the issue, Rocky? Well, I I like that we finally got it spelled out a little bit more concisely. Uh, It's for the first time, it it feels like we're actually, we we are indeed getting a whole series of Blue Beetles uh, because we we seem to be dancing around the issue in the previous issues leading up to this, uh, the previous, uh, well, the previous four issues. Uh, We got Natita, Dynasties, Blue Beetle, and we we got different colors of Blue Beetles and they, they are the good guys of the horizon which are fighting against the Reach. And so this really is sort of DC's version of Power Rangers, but that's a good thing. And I think that maybe even explains DC trying to pick from various corners, having a little bit of manga influence on the art, Fantastic Colors by Quintana, which you already mentioned, and, uh, you know, just some pushback on members of the Justice League, Jaime Reynas sort of coming into his own. Uh, this is uh, this is was, was an exciting issue. I, I like that he stood up to Batman, Superman, Flash, Cyborg. This was a really good issue, and, uh, you know, the colors in particular really popped off the page, and even Black Con- the Black Condor shows up. That was a huge surprise. I never expected to see Black Condor. The last time I saw him, I think, was on the Freedom Fighters, uh, which, so this was, that was Vendetti's Freedom Fighters, I think, or, or maybe 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 I'm confusing myself, but in any event, it was nice to see Black Condor. It was definitely out of the blue. I guess if we can't get Hawkman, we can get Black Condor. I mean, uh, a small constellation, but there it is. But uh, this was, I think, the best issue so far. I like this. We're finally getting some action. We're finally getting the, you know, the Power Range, I mean, the Blue Beetles coming, t- teaming up, and, uh, you know, Finally, the, they, they fought each other when they first met. And now, now we got the Nintita dynasties of Blue Beetle uh, combining their powers as, as it, this issue ends with the Reach, uh, with, the, with the starships of the Reach uh, surrounding orbit around the Earth. And so uh, 
uh, is this, I'm not really sure. Is this the, it's the fifth issue. This is a six issue. So we only got one issue to resolve everything, which I think is kind of disappointing. Uh, one issue to resolve. We've been building this, to this massive battle with the reach and we only got one issue to, to do it in. And I, I feel a little bit let down because I don't know if we needed that much of a buildup for issues leading to this, but you know, I'll take what I can get because this has been one of those series that has surprised me. And so, uh, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm looking forward to how things wrap up, but, but knowing DC, this is the sixth issue will probably end on a cliffhanger leading into an, a, another series of some kind. But uh, in any event, it's this this has been one of the more pleasant surprises that DC has in store for for its one of its more younger uh, characters. Yeah, learning that the, the Horizon is kind of a almost a, a rebellion group within the Reach is interesting, and and they're they're the ones that have arrived on Earth. Um, so the battle with the reach in my mind is still still to come. So as you said, the next issue would probably be more about an initial misunderstanding with the horizon and a battle and then eventually coming together to face the threat that is the reach and you know where that that might take place what what miniseries, what event, who knows. Um, I mean they could put it on a shelf for a year or two it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. So um, so yeah, all in all uh, an interesting series. And, um, yeah, kudos to Josh Trujillo for, uh, a really, really fun take, uh, a lot of action, a lot of, um, guest, guest stars too. You got a chance to write Batman and Superman and, uh, Wonder Woman, rest of the Justice League. So, uh, all right, moving on, we have a Batman Gotham Knight Gilded City part six. This is the video game tie-in. It's final issue. Written by Evan Narcisse. Abel is the artist. John is the colorist. Steve Wands on letters. Um, it it sort of ends and sort of doesn't. I mean, there there's it, it's it's an ending of sorts. But then you know you have the blurb continued in the video game Gotham Knights on sale now. So um, this is very much a, a prelude. We found out the identity of Runaway. Uh, it turns out that she's. Uh, long lived. Uh, it's Vivica Fox. She's long lived because of the experiments that were um, performed on her by Vandal Savage, and it extended her life and her vitality. So she's, you know, even shows up in uh, in modern times to fight against Vandal Savage and alongside the Bat Family as they're trying to take out this this golden virus. So she's sort of the bridge that ties in the the past story with the current story. Uh, I stand by what I've said throughout. The past story is set in the 1800s, 1840s. It's so much more interesting than what's happening in the current time. But again, it all ties into the video game. And if you're a big fan, uh, this is going to add some context to it. It's sort of a prelude to the video game. I'm not a gamer in that sense. So for me, this is just sort of a standalone story that was interesting enough. But in the long term, I probably won't remember much about it because it wasn't that memorable, to be honest, except for um, the character of Runaway, which she ended up being a, a really fun character, almost a, um, an ancestor of Batman in a lot of ways. So, um, and the other thing I'll take away from this is Vandal Savage is a good villain and I think he's underused. I think in the hands of the right writer, he can be a a fantastic villain. Um, but I feel like he's, he's definitely underutilized by DC currently. So, uh, what were your thoughts on this series, Rocky? Uh, just to build on your comment, uh, Vandal Savage is notoriously undervalued by DC. There's no reason in the world why Vandal Savage shouldn't be the most intelligent, the most strategic, tactically superior uh, uh, villain 
or even character in the entire DC universe. I don't care what anybody says. If you're immortal, you literally have lifetime upon lifetime upon lifetime to get to to correct your mistakes and uh, do what you uh, to do what you have to do to accomplish what you have to do. So my favorite DC stories, many of them involve Vandal Savage finally you know, finishing his plans, which are literally centuries in the making. And I always get frustrated when some Duke Machina ending undoes Vandal Savage's plans. But I digress, although there, this is a Vandal Savage story in a sense in and of itself. Uh, one little minor nitpick here. I guess maybe it's minor, maybe it's, but this, is it Visha, Vivisha Fox? What, what's, what's her, Vivian Fox? I think it's, I think it's Vivica. Vivica Fox here. Um, she, uh, first of all, the runaway looked male for the entire series. Uh, and I guess she just, she was a woman that dressed like a man. It was a man. It was drawn like a man. It looked like a man. It, it was a man. And then now all of a sudden the reveal is that it's a woman. It's, it's really an artistic cheat. Uh, and, 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 and I, it just rubbed me the wrong way. I mean, if it's a, if it's a woman, then draw it like a woman. Uh, it just seemed rather silly to, to draw it like a man for all this time. And then suddenly it's a woman. Uh, it's, it was an artistic cheat and it, it really lacked verisimilitude to me. Um, and it's, it, it, but again, that's a minor nitpick uh, because I do actually like uh, the revelation actually does make sense because uh, uh, Miss Fox was involved. She's involved in uh, she does have a same sex partner b back then. So she was sort of ahead of her time. And now she's also gained some degree of immortality or some degree of uh, uh, vitality that she can uh, live longer and carry her into fighting the golden virus through the generations, which carries into the video game. So it does actually work fairly well. I agree with you that for fans of the video game, video gamers love action and they don't have a lot of patience in my, in my, uh, in my experience. Uh, uh, unless it's a video game, I don't see them having the patience to plod through the relentless ongoing present day narrative that this six issues went through because it, it dragged on too long in the present day and it was it didn't it didn't really serve uh, it would it, the, the past story the, the story in the past the origin of the runaway is far far more interesting plus it leads to we, we literally have more than run more than one runaway in the present it's literally a group of runaways literally called the runaways all dressed and looking the same and it, there, there's some potential here unfortunately it does end on, end on somewhat of a cliffhanger and I, I question the degree to which there really is that overlap between comic books and video gamers uh, but we did have DC has done that before with its Batman Fortnite with some degree of success so maybe the jury's still out on that and that's uh, that's an audience that DC is still trying to court so we shall see but overall it's uh, it's not a bad story but as a comic book creator a little dissatisfied with its abrupt ending because I'm not going to play the video game I'm not a video gamer and maybe if you're but if you if you're a video gamer you, you might want to check this out so yeah I, I, I agree I think it adds context and richness to the game. So up to you if you want to take the dive. Uh, okay. Up next, Stargirl and the Lost Children, number five. Jeff Johns is a writer. Ton Nock is the artist. Matt Herms on colors. Rob Lee on letters. We saw last time that Our Man supposedly uh, is the villain, but then right away it's that's changed. Hey, he actually works for someone else. Who it is, we don't know. Uh, but there was a pretty good wrap-up or recap by Jeff Johns in the last issue that sort of continued here. Um, and there's a fantastic double-page spread early on in the issue with a bunch of headshots from all the different lost sidekicks by Todd Nock. It's a fantastic page, tons of detail. 
And I, I love that we're getting the names of all these characters. You know, it's really kind of an old school thing to do in a comic. And so kudos to, to Todd Nock and Jeff Johns for, for doing that. As far as the story goes, I, I'm still in. I'm still It's still interesting to me, but it does f- start to feel like it's being a little bit repetitive. It's like, okay, they're on the island. They're fighting against the childminder. A childminder seems to be re- ready to sell these kids or trade these kids to somebody else. Who's the big bad? It's starting to feel like it's dragging a little bit to me. Um, but, you know, again, I'm I'm in. It's fun. Uh, even if it does feel like it might be dragging a little bit, the, the mystery dragging out. I'm still in because the art's fantastic. Col- the colors are fantastic. And it is fun. So if I start to get a little bored at all with the pacing being a little slower than I would like, I just look at some Todd knock line work and a beautiful Matt Herm's colors and, and I'm happy. So I'm still in on this. It's, it's a lot of fun and getting to see these young characters who are sort of lost in time, um, develop their own personalities is, is a lot of fun. So one issue to go, um, this also doesn't feel like it necessarily can be wrapped up in one issue. Um, so where it might go from here, what what the next sto- chapter is for this. You know, we had Flashpoint Beyond. We had New Golden Age, One Shot. Now we've had this series. Uh, it doesn't feel like John's is done. Um, he's certainly continuing so- some of the seeds planted in those other two books in the current Justice Society run. We know that's been plagued by delays. Um, which is really frustrating because there's multiple artists on it. Um, but I, I feel like there's got to be more Stargirl coming at some point. But then again, we had the Stargirl Summer Special that was like three years ago that it came out, which directly led into this. So I feel like there's more to the story. There probably will be a sequel to it, but it may not be for a couple of years. So um, in the meantime, I'm just enjoying this for, for what it is. But yeah, I can't, as much as I love Jeff Johns and Todd Nock, I can't let him off the hook for some, some slow pacing. Um, so I, I guess I'm in a way I'm glad next issue is the final issue. So I can kind of get the conclusion to this part of the story. On the other hand, I'm not glad that it's going to end because I really enjoy this series and it's great seeing Todd Nock's art on a, on a monthly title. So uh, what did you think, Rob? Well, uh, Compliments to Todd, Todd Nark, like Nark, like you said. I mean, we we get we get in a, a double page spread with all those all those heads with all the names on it. I mean, uh, this is fantastic. I mean, uh, if we should be grateful because if it was Ed Brisson or Matthew Rosenberg, we wouldn't know the names of any of the characters, and we'd be guessing still. <laughs> I'm, I'm being a little bit of a jerk when I say that, but uh, uh, I will say that. Uh, this was very slow paced. This is the second issue in a row by Johns where I'm disappointed. Frankly, I, although, although who am I to be disappointed with all these characters, right? There's a lot of characters here and you know what? I'll forgive the, the, the snail pacing of this issue because we get some character moments. That's what John's is really doing here. He's, we get some character moments where finally some of these kids don't get along with each other and they shouldn't get along with each other. I mean, how can all of them get along and all fight for the, the same common goal? Surely there's going to be some dissension. We finally see a little bit of dissension in the ranks, some arguing star girl, you know, tells a couple of them to smile 
smarten up. We got a common goal to fight toward, et cetera, et cetera. Our man shows up. He appear, appears to be on their side, but he's referring to an owner. So apparently the, the our man scolds the child minder saying, why did these children have escaped? Where are they? The owner is going to be upset. Who is the owner? I suspect we're, we're going to get to the end of issue six and we might, we still might not know who the owner is. You know, I suspect all that's going to happen by the end of issue six, these kids will all be sent back to their time and that'll be it. And then, and all, then, then we DC readers, readers, all we will know is that in, in the DC's past, we can expect now that essentially things are rewritten and these kids now are going to show up in past stories and they're going to, their future generational selves or the future, whatever their offspring will end up showing up in the mainstream DC universe. And people will point to this series as establishing these characters having previously existed. I think that's all that is. This is a way to shoehorn in these characters in the DC universe in a way that could justify new characters moving forward. And Hey, you got to do what you got to do. And Jeff Johns is really good at that kind of thing. And that's what we're getting. And we got great Todd knock art to do it. Uh, but as far as the central mystery, what is this island? How did the kids get there? We really don't have any answers. Uh, I mean, these characters are interesting, but in terms of plot, this is a fairly loose plot, and I'm, I'm disappointed in, in that aspect of it. But, you know, I got to be realistic. I don't know if Johns could really pull off a miracle with this many characters with only six issues. I mean, I, you know, so I, I got to cut him some slack in that regard. But I really do wish this was another six issues more just so we could get some more of that uh, Jeff Johns uh, storytelling and Todd Narc's art, art. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't disagree. But, yeah, it sounds like we're both on the same page as far as it just kind of dragging because you're right. I, you know, we will get a resolution to the story, but. How many answers can we really get in, in one issue? Which goes back to what I was saying about, yeah, it feels like there's got to be another another chapter. But with John's current pacing of comic work, again, it could be two or three years before we get it. So a little disappointing. But anyway, moving on to a story that does wrap up um, completely, if not bleakly. But what do you expect from a Tom King book, right? <laughs> Gotham City Year One, written by Tom King. This is uh, part six, pencils are by Phil Hester, inks by Eric Gapster, colors by Jordi Belair, letters by Clayton Cowles. This is a masterpiece. Um, Tom says it's a favorite thing he's written. I can see why. He's such a fan of, of pulp and crime noir, and that's exactly what this is. And much like a lot of those classic uh, movies from the 30s and 40s, crime noir, it doesn't end necessarily on a hopeful note or an upbeat note. Uh, some people that have done some really horrible things end up coming out ahead. Um, there really are no innocents. You know, everybody's tainted. Everybody is uh, has made poor choices. Everything's sort of in a gray area. And uh, I just found this to be a masterpiece. It was so good. Um, I talked before about whether or not Tom might get some pushback on sort of selling the the good name of of the Wayne family uh you know royalty in in the city of Gotham and certainly when you talk about the choices that his grandmother made while you can understand them it's sort of hard to agree with them it's certainly hard to applaud them you know she doesn't make choices that are necessarily morally um good but you can understand why you know she's human she's flawed she's as um you know, susceptible to the baser impulses of, you know, jealousy and anger and what have you as, as any of us. But it, the story certainly didn't put the Waynes in a good light at all. 
and and also an interesting choice for Tom to tell the story as narrated by Slam Bradley, who obviously was one of the main characters here. Um, so I, I really enjoyed this. Um, you know, it doesn't say that it's black label. So, you know, technically this is in continuity, but again, um, it kind of contradicts some things that have been said previously about the, the Waynes and the Wayne family. So how much people actually accept this as canon and how much they choose to ignore it remains to be seen. We'll know that for a long time. Um, but I thought this was a masterpiece. It was so good. Uh, what, what were your thoughts? Well, yeah, just to be clear to people here, uh, uh, what this says, I don't think this. I have, I would have no problem if, if, uh, if this became the, if this became continuity and and sort of erased some of the, to the extent that it contradicts previous continuity, it really is not that big a deal. This, this, I mean, for, for people that are have a conniption fit over this, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't harm in any way, shape, or form Thomas and, and Martha Wayne. Okay, it's it's the grandparents, it's 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 Thomas Thomas Wayne's parents who weren't that great of people. Thomas's mother uh, was a manipulator and a jealous woman because uh, Thomas's father was having an affair. And ultimately, uh, he arranged the kidnapping of his own daughter, Helena Wayne. And uh, Helena Wayne accidentally choked on her own vomit and she ended up dying tragically. And they ended up uh, making it look like she died of other means. And there was a bunch of manipulation and they set up Slam Bradley. And so, yeah, uh, Grandpa and Grandma Wayne are really bad. But Thomas and Martha Wayne are still wonderful people. And this basically ends with uh, Helena Wayne was the older sister of Thomas Wayne who died. And then after this, you know, they, they had another son who became Thomas Wayne, who was the father of Bruce Wayne. That's really it. Uh, we got the origins of Crime Alley, which I thought were pretty good. We got some We got some Gotham City history, which was amazing. I thought Tom King made Gotham City feel genuinely like a city that had a life of its own. We got a sense of the evolution of Gotham City from a city that could have been a better city, evolved into a better city, but for reasons which are explained throughout the six issues, you can see, get a sense of why Gotham evolved in the manner it did to become the darker place that it did, which it's not Tom King being dark, Gotham City's been a shithole for a long time. Newsflash. This is him. Uh, in fact, you couldn't think of a can't think of a better writer to maybe, frankly, tell this story. So, I think this is a, this is excellent. If this is going to be in continuity, that's fine. I mean, that's fine. It, it 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 doesn't taint. How many? I mean, anybody out there who's who's all upset that Grandpa and Grandma Wayne are tainted? What you know? Please. Go, 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 go drown your tears in tissues as if you cared about the, the, the father of Thomas Wayne. Come on. Um, this is an, an excellent, uh, excellent series. Excellent story. Very well done. And, uh, you know, I just I, I will de I will defend this story against, you know, most of the I mean, finally, we get a little bit of background of Gotham City prior to the Waynes. Uh, this is something that, quite frankly, I would love to see if this was put to the screen or if they're going to have, you know, they always have on their CW network some Gotham offshoot of Gotham, you know, instead of the garbage that they're putting on CW, I mean, actually have some backstories like this that would, uh, it would sell like, it, it would really attract an audience because this is crime noir at its finest. And again, Tom King just hit it out of the park. Yeah. It's hard to overestimate just how good this is. Um, and especially, you know, it's titled so appropriately Gotham city year one. This is, you know, you look at, I, I mentioned the Wayne family as sort of the royalty of Gotham and then becoming so tainted by the, the choices that 
Richard and um, Constance make here, right? So yeah. sort of the beginning of the end, the, the beginning of the innocence of uh, the end of the innocence of Gotham. And we talked a lot about that, how false that innocence was, right? How it was built on sort of a, a fascist police force and heavy handedness. Um, and so really, this is almost Gotham City starting to become true to itself, but really the beginning of the Gotham City that we know. Um, so it's also extremely appropriately titled. So kudos to DC. Um, Phil Hester, fantastic job on art. And yeah, Tom King, obviously um, just perfect, perfect ending. So, uh, all right. Really curious about your thoughts on this one, Rocky. Up next, Harley Quinn, number 28. This is the first Tinny Howard issue. Sweeney Boo does the art and colors. Steve Wands on letters. Uh, and then there's a, a backup that's done by Erica Henderson um, that sort of feels like what was the point. But anyway, uh, what were your thoughts on the main story? Uh <clears throat> Well, first I want to talk about the art. I uh, Sweeney Boo, Sweeney Boo surprised the heck out of me. Uh, straight up, I was very surprised. I was pleasantly surprised. First, let me complain about the too many bloody variant covers. Good grief, man, DC. Anyway, but I, but you know what? I'm going to complain about. I'm going to be a hypocrite. I'm going to complain about too many variant covers, and then I'm going to say that some of them are pretty damn nice. Jenny Frizen's was pretty good. There's this little Harley in the Land of Nightmares cover. I don't know who, you know, I don't know. I don't know why they don't put their full names on these covers somewhere. But uh, I think it's a Sook cover. Ryan Sook's cover looks really amazing, really ama uh, great. There's some really nice covers, which I'm showing on the screen here. Um, so, yeah, shout out. Uh, shout out to the um, amazing variant covers, even though we have too damn many of them. But as far as the story itself, um, it's called Girl in a Crisis Part One. Now, uh, Teeny Howard is, this is, we've gotten a lot, we've got Harley Quinn screws up the DC universe, we've had Harley Finn fighting the, the, the Harley who laughs, we've had Harley in a lot of like crisis level sort of events told in a, an, an attempt to show them in a per, uh, humorous manner, and this is the same sort of thing. Uh, Sweeney Boo's art, I, I really like it here, uh, Teeny Howard's story is... It's really off the beaten path. Like it's well, it's it's Harley Quinn, and I I know I sound like a broken record. I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. I almost feel am I justified in even criticizing a Harley Quinn comic like this because it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be silly. It's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be off the wall. Is it is it even a legitimate criticism to say that? How can this be in continuity? It's Harley Quinn. So, you know, all I know is it, it's. I'm never, I'm not really a big Harley fan. I, I prefer a darker Harley, a more evil Harley, and one that would be in the mainstream DC universe. We're never going to get that, and I have to accept that. This, this is Harley Quinn, you know, I guess petting her, petting her two pet hyenas, having a dispute with, with Two-Face, and then she ends up at the end being confronted out of the blue by Lady Quark, the la Lady Quark of Earth-48, who literally pops out of nowhere... Uh, and the last time I remember seeing Lady Quark for me was way back in the original Crisis. And apparently now she's claiming that Lady Quark is a member of the royal family of Earth-48 and they patrol they patrol the, the, the multiverse. And Harley, uh, uh, apparently Lady Quark, her family is more powerful than gods. And apparently Harley has the power to access the multiverse now for reasons which are not really explained. And she ended up with this fish 
and I, I I don't even know how to explain this story. This is really really wacky, and I um uh, like like it, it's really really wonky. It, this is really really out there. She I I I I don't get it, and I I didn't find it. It's not that I didn't find it funny, but I guess I didn't really find it funny. I found it silly. But I find most Harley Quinn comics silly as opposed to funny because humor is very hard to pull off in comics. I say that with respect to all all writers, and um, you know I I don't I, I I this didn't really do much for me to be quite frank. Uh, although I, I want to give compliments to Sweeney Boo's art, it's it's really good. I think it's it's definitely suited for. I thought it was suited for Harley, and uh, she's. There's something different about the art. People who were t- turned off by Raleigh Rosmo's art, by all means, I think you can come back. I think you, I think you'll enjoy this particular style. Uh, it's, uh, it's probably more to people's liking. It's less stylistic than Riley Rosmo's was. And uh, there's a backup here that, uh, frankly, I, I wasn't a fan of the art. The backup is by um, Erica Henderson. And I, I remember uh, Erica Henderson, I think of Squirrel Girl fame. And uh, I, I actually read and bu- I actually own and bought the first 27 issues, 26, 27 issues of Squirrel Girl. The reason why I know that is that I just finished bagging and boarding them because I was doing that a couple of weekends ago. And uh, so I'm not a, it's, it's funny, I'm not a huge fan of Erica Henderson's art, but uh, uh, it kind of grows on you after a while. So in any event, uh, this is meh for me. I what do you think of Harley Quinn? I I, I don't even. I, it's just not my cup of tea. This, but I, I do. The art was okay. Yeah, the art was interesting. You know, Sweeney Boo definitely has her own style, and seeing this sort of um, well dressed, slick looking, for lack of a better word, Italian looking Two Face, who's concerned about his shoes, as if they were like, you know. Gucci shoes or something. It's an interesting take. Yeah. Um, and so I enjoyed, yeah, I enjoyed the art, even though, you know, this isn't a, a, a look Harley has had previously, not a look that the two faces had previously either. And uh, Tinny's bringing back the, the jackals loon, bud as well yeah. uh, into the main continuity. So there feels like some elements of, of classic Harley here and the zaniness of classic Harley is, is back, right? We, we had a sort of a more grounded, Harley with the Stephanie Phillips era where, yeah, she was still crazy in a lot of ways, but um, there was a, kind of a stability that was sort of inherent there that she seemed to be starting to assert with the Tinny Howard era here. We're back to the completely zany Harley, which normally I don't really care for, but for some reason this really <laughs> worked for me. Um and I think a lot of it has to do with just kind of the throwaway lines that Tinny gives us here. Like when Harley's talking to her, her two henchmen um, and they're, you know, saying, uh, you know, our fee has to include the costume rentals, you know, it's a gig economy. Um, you know, we got to advocate for ourselves. Big villain will chew us up and spit us out. It's just kind of meta and really fun. And uh, that was at that moment when I kind of was pulled in, um, by Tinny. Uh, I do agree that some, some of the stuff seems out of the blue, Harley being able to, to pull objects from other parts of the multiverse, um, like that fish that you mentioned, but it's all to the good, right? I mean, yeah. it's unexpected. It's a different sort of Harley Quinn. Um, 
and Tinny actually, when I was at WonderCon uh, on the Dawn of DC panel, she talked about getting Harley back to basics a little bit uh, to some extent with kind of her insanity. And so it feels like it might go back to that way, which again is so strange to me because that's not really a, a Harley that I typically enjoy. But I think what made it work so well for me was this Sweeney Boo art because from the line work to the colors to the page layouts, it was really interesting. I mean, the last person I would expect to have seen, you kind of alluded to this, is Lady Quark and a Harley Quinn comic. Well, why? You know, who said Lady Quark is yeah. part of the royal family that's policing the multiverse? Like, where does that come from? But it works. It's interesting. Uh, Lady Quark's a, a character, again, it hasn't been used enough. Um, I mean, she was so bitter in the original Crisis, right? She was the only survivor of her world, and she was just angry. <laughs> Couldn't wait to uh, take it out on the anti-monitor. She was so mad. Um, and so, you know, taking that idea and, and twisting it a little bit, uh, is really interesting. So, uh, you know, I won't go so far as to say I, I'm all in on this, but this issue really, really worked for me. And again, it was a, a good match of, I think the kind of the zaniness that Tinny's going for matched up perfectly well with, uh, the art and the colors by Sweeney Boo. So more than anything, I think that's what really impressed me and pulled me in, um, was that the tone of humor, the, the type of humor. I mean, the fact that <laughs> that Harley gets sentenced to community service by teaching psych classes at a community college. I mean, that that's a great setup. That's a, a setup that's rife for, for humor. Um, but it's not just humor for humor's sake. It's a, the humor is a little smarter. And maybe that's at the end of the day why I enjoyed it so much because that's the kind of humor that I uh, I tend to enjoy as opposed to, you know, double entendres and, you know, sex jokes and whatever. That's just kind of the lowest common denominator, uh, potty humor or what have you. This is a little smarter than that. So uh, I really appreciated it. And again, I can't say enough great things about the art. As far as the backup, I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, I said as much like it, I, I don't know why it's here. It has its moments. Um, I thought the art by Erica Henderson was okay, but it didn't, I mean, other than, the one panel of seeing Harley smashed into the ground by this giant monster that kind of steps on her. I, I didn't find it particularly amusing um, with the exception of that one panel. So yeah, I just thought the backup was, was meh. Won't be something that I'll, I'll remember. Uh, all right. Up next. I'm really curious about your thoughts on this one as well. Dark Knights of Steel, number 10 written by Tom Taylor. Art is by Yasmin Putri. Colors by Arif Prianto. Letters by Wes Abbott. Last issue, we saw that uh, the Alfred Pennyworth character that we thought we all knew as the, the traditional Alfred Pennyworth character is actually John Jones, Martian Manhunter. And uh, in this issue, we, we learn who the big bad of this story really is. So what were your thoughts? Uh, this uh... – I feel this this whole thing's wrapped up so quickly. I, I realize that it's it's only twelve issues long, and so uh, I guess we kind of know that things had to have started wrapping up quicker. But for some reason, I was really kind of hoping that uh, I wish we could have spent a longer period of time uh, dealing with the inner workings and the machinations and the politics of this new land that Tom Taylor has created, because it wraps up so quickly. It's so convenient. There, all of a sudden, everybody knows that everybody, nobody's at fault. Everyone knows now that, oh, well, you know what? Uh, 
Uh, we were all wronged. We were all deceived. Now we're all going to band together. And by the end of this issue, everyone knows, pretty much everyone knows who the villain is and everyone knows who, everyone's going to band together. And uh, it's just, it's too convenient for me. I wanted this to be more messy. I wanted this, I wanted, because there was so much cool setup for so many uh, machinations and misunderstandings and more of a Game of Thrones thing. That was really the thing. And and I know, uh as a reviewer, many of us as reviewers, when we say Game of Thrones, it, we maybe overuse that term, but everybody knows what we mean. We, Game of Thrones is a high standard, but there was potential here for that. I think it's been squandered. You know, uh, this being basically just green Martians, white versus white Martians, white Martians are the bad guy. White Martians uh, had taken over Alexander Luther, white Marsh. It looks like a, the white Martian has a green lantern ring, uh, which maybe adds to his power a bit. So there. So this is really the earth against white Martians. And meanwhile, all the various kingdoms uh, that uh, the, the king, the, the you know, the uh, the, the kingdom of uh, storms, the kingdom of uh, King Al, all the monarchs. Hippolyta, uh, all of them, uh, all their armies have come together and they were warring against each other. And then all of a sudden, you know, just, you know, Kal-El shows on the scene and despite all the machinations, Batman shows, you know, pardon me, you know, the, 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 the dark knight, you know, shows up, even a grieving, a grieving Diana uh, over the loss of Queen Hippolyta. You know, all of them, despite all of that, everyone, calmer heads prevail. You know, I would have liked to have seen the opposite. I would like to have seen unforgiveness. I would like to have seen some of them not embrace the better angels of their nature, but to embrace the darkness. I would like to have seen that, and I'd like to see this go for another 12, 24, 36 issues. But having said that, this is going to be a very convenient wrap-up. Uh, and because uh, this is issue 10, 11, and 12, I'm sure we're going to have everything conveniently wrapped up. And I know it's an, I'm, I don't know if, am I, am I giving an underhanded compliment? I think maybe I am because I've, I, I want Tom Taylor to get to the point sometimes and, and give us, because um, we do get some good character work here. But um, I, I just, I actually want more plot. I, I really, there's, there's so much greatness in the plot here that we're not going to get because of just convenience of wrapping everything up. And far too much of this issue was spent on the origins of the White Marshal. Everybody, we already know the origin of the Green and White Martian. And the sa sadly, he's pretty much duplicated exactly the origin of the White and Green Martians that we've seen in every other iteration of, of Martian Manhunter. So there was literally nothing new about that. That was disappointing. There was no wrinkle there. And and maybe I'm, uh, this is Tom Taylor. He's an amazing writer and I'm holding him to a higher standard, but I know that he's better than this, but I, I realize he only has, maybe has 12 issues, but I was expecting more. So maybe I'm being too harsh on Taylor, but I was expecting more. And this just felt a little bit too convenient uh, and a little bit too, uh, you know, lovey-dovey, everything sort of conveniently wrapping up uh, and, and putting the chess pieces in place far too soon for my liking but uh what do you think oh sorry you're on mute there buddy sorry i think i enjoyed it a lot more than you which is interesting because i think throughout you've enjoyed this series more more than i have so first of all mm. what i'll say is you know as much as tom taylor is a great writer and we saw what he did with deceased which ended up having i think three or four series it's always a risk right whenever you do something like this let's take the dc heroes and villains put them in a medieval setting and see what happens 
can kind of look at the, what he did over at Marvel with the Dark Ages series, which didn't sell that great. Um, so I'm sure that the editorial minds at DC were kind of like, well, let's give him a 12 issue and see what happens. Um, but we're going to want a complete and contained story. And so, you know, if I if I have to nitpick something and you, you kind of touched on it, the pacing in this is really inconsistent. It starts off and it's the pacing is actually really quite slow. And we're getting some really strong character work, some really in-depth look at at the world that he's created in terms of the the uh, the elves ruling, taking over from the Waynes and the human kingdom. And then as the story goes on, the pacing picks up tremendously. And again, it, it gets a little uneven and it starts to feel a little bit choppy, like we're skipping over some things that we shouldn't. And there are people that are acting out of character. I mean, it's easy to go back with the knowledge we have now. Hey, white Martians, shapeshifters, and what have you, you know, you, you'll go back and read it once it's all said and done, or I'll go back and read it once it's all said and done. And, you know, I'll be able to recognize, okay, that's when, um, you know, Kal-El was being uh, impersonated by uh, a white Martian or what have you. So it makes a lot of sense in that way, but it doesn't stop it from feeling choppy and feeling um, at the end, like, Okay, it started off slow. The pacing has gradually built up, but we're skipping over so many rich story points, which leads me to my next point, which is that, yeah, very similar to what they did with Deceased, but then Deceased was so popular, it, you know, you had other miniseries, including the the one that's going on right now, you know, uh, whatever it is, Undead Gods. So I expect there, a hundred percent, there's going to be more Dark Knights of Steel, which may you know, explore this world more. We may go back, we may go forward, we may see some things tangentially. We could have a series from Luther's uh, vantage point, how he was duped by the White Martians and what have you. So uh, I fully expect, based on the success of this, that that's going to happen. Um, now, whether or not this White Martian origin needed to be shown, because you're right, it's very similar to every white Martian story, Martian Civil War story we've ever had in continuity, which is interesting because Taylor could have taken it in any number of different ways, um, like he has done and has taken liberties, uh, whether that be turning Alfred Pennyworth into the Spectre or here, Alfred Pennyworth is John Jones. Like they're both by Tom Taylor. I love it. Like let's, <laughs> yeah. let's give Alfred some, some love, you know, I, I miss him in the main DC continuity. So the fact that he chose to keep it the same, I, you know, I don't know that it, I would call it lazy because it, it works. It's, it's one of those things where, well, how do you really improve on it? It's sort of perfect the way that it is. Um, whether or not it needs <clears throat> to be shown here, you know, is up for debate. I, I, I feel like, there are so many people that jump onto Tom Taylor books that only read Tom Taylor books or aren't aware of the white Martian origin. You know, I mean, you think about it, white Martians, Grant Morrison story, you know, there's another telling of the civil war, very classic, but that that's JLA that's late nineties. Right. I mean, that's almost 30 years ago now. So you may have a lot of people picking this up that, that aren't familiar. Again, it goes back to you and I, we were DC heads. We know the history and what have you. So I didn't mind it being retold here um, because it was done in a quality way with the narration of Alfred Pennyworth, John Jones, Martian Manhunter, whatever you want to call him, you know, with his context, with the emotionality of uh, losing his race and, and being the, you know, the last one left of the, the green, 
Martian. So I, I didn't mind it necessarily, but I can see your point. Um, we could have we could have gotten other things in that space in the, in that real estate, but I expect there to be more Dark Knights of Steel, and so I'm sure we'll get a lot of those stories. But at the end of the day, this world that uh, Tom Taylor has created, Dark Knights of Steel, much like the DC universe, it's like. If it's this popular, honestly, as much as I'm saying, you know, DC's putting out too much content, Taylor, you don't have time to write it. He's created worlds within the DC universe or DC multiverse where any writer can now go in there and tell a story in in there, you know, like, I, frankly, I'd prefer to have a kind of a deceased anthology as opposed to Batman Brave and the Bold that's coming out that's replacing Batman Urban Legends. Or even a Dark Knights of Steel anthology where you're, you know, telling stories in this world and like it's a it's a rich, right? It's a rich tapestry and you have less creative restrictions because it's not in the main DC universe continuity. So rather than having another Batman anthology with more Batman stories, I'd rather this. Not to say you couldn't tell Batman stories, right? Um, so uh, I get it. I, I understand where you're coming from. You, you know, you kind of want this world flushed out a little more. I don't disagree with you i think it's just a matter of at the end of the day a matter of bandwidth for uh for tom taylor but i 100 i would be shocked i would be shocked if dc doesn't come out and announce another dark knights of steel probably a six issue is my guess could be digital first could be who knows one shot series of one shots who knows they will do more dark knights of steel um because there we both know there's no way this story wraps up uh, this the, the universal story wraps up. You might be able to wrap up this smaller little conflict between uh, the White Martians and the Green Martians and how the White Martians have tried to pit these three kingdoms against each other. Um, you can wrap up that storyline, which, you know, we didn't even talk about that. It's, it, that's a very good use of the White Martians. I didn't necessarily expect there to be White Martians. And so that was a, probably another part of the reason that I didn't mind having the, the retelling here because it's such an inspired way. Like, you know, we're, I'm, we're speculating who's the big bad, you know, with the green man, we're thinking kryptonite, we're thinking Luther, um, just the way everything played out. I thought it was just yeah. brilliant, brilliantly done by, uh, by, by Tom Taylor. And really the idea of these white Martians, they're so duplicitous, right? They're so deceitful. And so that's why they ended up being the perfect choice for everything that has, has taken place so far. So kudos to Taylor. Um, this particular issue might, has been my favorite issue of the series so far. And this issue has made me like the whole series more um, because of the context it provides for the earlier issues. So I'm, I, I'm more on board with it now than I was, which is so interesting to me because you're, you, it feels like this was one of your least favorite issues. So, well, no, it's, well, again, I, I just feel that, you know, I just, I just wanted a little bit more. This one just felt, it just felt a little bit kind of tropey and predictable. I was just hoping for some more twists and turns, but uh, I think I was maybe being unrealistic. But the good thing, the positive thing is that we have a brand new, it's its own universe and future writers can play in the sandbox created by Tom Taylor on Dark Knights of Steel. So uh, we can always, uh, there's going to be this story and many more to come, I'm sure, like you said. Yeah, 100%. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Sandman Universe Dead Boy Detectives number four from writer Pornsack Pichichot. Javier Rodriguez is the guest artist. Jeff Stokely does the pencils on page 24. 
Craig Tallier does the inks on page 24. Miguel Muerto does the colors on page 24. The rest of it's all Javier Rodriguez. Hassan Atzman Elhau does the lettering. I have to admit that I enjoyed this series uh, or this issue for kind of what it was as a standalone, but I, I'm still struggling a little bit to put this all together. What exactly is happening here? Um, but I think that's on me um, sort of a byproduct of the fact that we are reading so much stuff. And I, I had a hard time. Like I felt like the first two issues of dead boy detectives, I was on board. I understood what was happening. Um, and I just got lost somewhere along the way in issue three. And because I, I think I didn't have a good grasp on what happened in issue three. I, you know, that kind of feeling of being lost continued in this issue, but I don't think this was a bad issue. Um, like individually, the the framework, the structure, um, the events of this issue did make sense to me. So I think it's, again, it's just on me. I need to go back and read issue three and then come back and read issue four again because I, I enjoyed some of the things that happened in this issue. I just didn't know that I had necessarily enough of the context for what was happening. And um, shame on me. Um, I saw Pornsack, um, had a drink with him. Um, while I was at WonderCon and I forgot, I, I should have picked his brain. <laughs> I should have been like, Hey, let's talk a little Sandman universe, dead boy detectives. Um, but I mean, it, it was in the context of, you know, a lot of other people were there as well. Not, not that I couldn't have had that conversation with him. Um, but I honestly just, just didn't come, come to mind. We were talking about this, uh, but I totally should have, uh, but yeah, it's not like I can't have him come on the show to, to explain, <laughs> Hey, explain your book to me. Uh, but anyway, um, Last thing I'll say is uh, I thought the Javier Rodriguez art was really strong. Um, I, I don't can't remember who the regular artist has been. I remember their art being a little esoteric and kind of spooky, um, which sort of suits the style of the story that's being told. This art is a little more traditional, and that's just where my proclivities lie. So I, I actually enjoyed this art more than than uh, the previous three issues. So anyway, what what were your thoughts? Uh, this was uh, I was confused this issue. I, I was uh, like you, I, one of the, uh, and uh, I'm going to be, uh, I'm not going to be quite as polite as you, or rather, I'm not going to be as self-effacing as you. That's the word I'm looking for. Um, I'm going to put some of the blame on uh, on the writer, <laughs> on Pikachu, on Pornsack. Uh, uh, now, the, the, the one thing that, the most interesting parts of every issue was, each issue does, we, we get an origin story of one of the dead one of the dead children, because it's the dead boys. Basically, this this series so far, if I was to oversimplify it, and I mean really oversimplify it, the two dead boy detectives, Charles and Edwin, meet other dead children, and there's a mystery surrounding it, and I'm really not sure what that mystery is. I, I'm, I'm not. I, I just don't know what that mystery is. But we get to, we here in this issue, we get the origin of one of the other children, Sonny, who was killed by a stalker when he came, when his family came to America. And because uh, they came to America from Thailand and uh, that the, the telling of that story is interesting. And, and each one of these children has a very interesting story and they, they almost have a, a story that's grounded in some degree of tragedy and bigotry and prejudice and, and racism. And and there's you know, there, there's a tragedy to, to that aspect of it. But that the, the central narrative, the magic around this and uh, I don't get it. I don't get it. And. I don't remember, like I, when I read this issue, I really didn't even remember aspects of previous stories to catch on to what was going on here. So I just plain, I'm not sure. 
what, what I do remember, what I think is more interesting is that Charles and Edwin and Dead Boys, they both kind of are attracted to Tanya. And Tanya is what they call a knack mother. And anybody who falls in love with a knack mother is cursed. So Charles is cursed. And that's why Charles' face throughout this issue I'm just, is all scarred and he it looks like he's decomposing. It's, it's horrible. So that's kind of interesting to me. But the larger narrative as to what they're looking for, I'm just... I'm just plumb. I, I I forgot. I would really have appreciated uh, a summary. As a matter of fact, he uh, Pornsack even tries to give a summary at the beginning. Um, he gives a summary at the beginning, uh, and uh, it's still uh, it still wasn't enough for me to to clue me in as to exactly what was going on. And um, and it's it's unfortunate, but I in any event, I'm, this is absolutely something as a warning to people. You absolutely have to read. You know, wait for the trade, straight up. Wait for the trade, because I'm sure. I I'll be blunt. I'm pretty sure even if I read this as a trade, I'd have to go back and read the previous pages. It would it would still be something I'd have to go back and remind myself, because uh, I I kept my previous notes and I'm looking at previous notes and I'm still sort of I I, I can't articulate myself well enough in explaining exactly what the plot line is here. So uh, people wait for the trade on this one is, is my recommendation. But again, I think it's rewarding. I like the dead boys, uh, but this is a more difficult story to follow than in the, in any previous dead boy iteration that, that I've read. Cause I've got, uh, you know, I've got, I got a nice little dead boy, uh, you know, collection going back to the, uh, going back more than a few years. So in any event, uh, not bad, but you know, I, I still like the art. I like the kids. I like the characters. I just wish the plot was, was a little bit more uh, easy to follow. Yeah, I think part of the reason that we might be having some trouble, you know, neither Rocky nor I are very familiar with uh, with Eastern horror myths and and tropes and legends and what have you, especially Taiwanese um, or Thai. I guess it's not, Taiwanese would be from Taiwan, but but Thai from Thailand. Um, and so he has spent and, you know, fine, no problem. He's spent some some time. He spent some page real estate explaining that at the expense of kind of some some story, um, which might help explain what's going on a little better. But again, that might be on us. Um, not necessarily saying it is, but it could be. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, the <laughs> debut of Unstoppable Doom Patrol, issue number one from writer Dennis Culver. Chris Burnham is the artist. Brian Reber on colors. Pat Brosso on letters. Uh, different sort of take on the Doom Patrol. Uh, we have the female chief. We have Rita Farrah, Last Woman, Larry Trainer, Negative Man, Robot Man, Cliff Steele, very reminiscent of kind of the TV show with their outfits. A new um, character called Beast Girl, and they talked about this at the Dawn of DC panel uh, at uh, WonderCon. How you know Beast Boy made his debut. A lot of people associate him with the Teen Titans, and rightfully so. That's where he spent the majority of his sort of comic book publishing career, but he made his debut in with Doom Patrol. So as kind of an homage to him, uh, Dennis Culver was saying that, yeah, they decided to create a, uh, a beast girl. Um, she doesn't have any sort of shape changing powers or anything. She does kind of look like a, I don't know, a, a monkey squirrel demon thing. Cause she's got a big fluffy squirrel tail, but Kind of looks like a monkey, but she's furry like a squirrel, but she has these like goat horns. So God only knows. Uh, but her powers have to do with uh, inducing the fight or flight reflex in somebody. Um, 
so th those are your four members uh, or five members rather of the, of the Doom Patrol. And we learn about their mission early on, so to speak. Uh, this is basically sort of a direct um, sequel to Lazarus Planet in a lot of ways because this, this version of the Doom Patrol is out there looking to help metahumans who have gained abilities because of the events of uh, Lazarus Planet, Lazarus Island erupting and what have you, um, and, and keep those metahumans from being exploited, ending up in Suicide Squad or ending up as villains or, or what have you. And so in this first issue, they're in Gotham City, even though they, they know that's going to bring them into conflict with Batman. Um, they want to help the metahuman whose sort of um, powers are out of control. And of course, Batman does show up and say, this is my city. You guys need to get out of here. This guy belongs in Arkham Tower. And I love what the, the chief says. Yeah. When has Arkham ever helped anybody? Amen to that. 100%. We've talked about it even on the show. How, why would you even name it Arkham Tower? So dumb. Um, Arkham is just synonymous with insanity and chaos and bad things. Um, and so the Doom Patrol does go and, uh, and recruit this guy to, uh, to be part of their team, I guess. So in a lot of ways, it reminds me a lot of classic X factor when it first started. Um, although they were sort of trying to masquerade as mutant hunters and that was a whole thing. Um, but that's what this kind of reminds me of. Like, are these, uh, you know, sort of villain of the week or metahuman of the week characters going to end up as sort of, um, at, at, a do patrol kind of school or academy or what have you is like minor supporting characters kind of like leech and Artie did back in the day um boom booms another one uh in the in that x factor title like i said also we know that the um peacemaker there's something going on with peacemaker here he says he soon will know all the secrets of the new doom patrol so what exactly that's has to do with and how task force x's espionage unit which i it's the first time hearing of Task Force X's espionage unit. Um, like how that all ties in, we'll have to wait and see. But really fun issue, fantastic art from Chris Burnham, very much his style, very recognizable as his art, great color work. Um, and then we also saw some members of the Brotherhood of Evil, classic Doom Patrol, and also to a lesser extent, Teen Titan villains um, with the brain and uh, Monsieur Mala and General Mortis, but seems like the brain meets his end at uh, the, the foot stomp of, uh, of Mala. But that, that, that was a bit of a surprise to me uh, to kill him off so early. But, you know, it's comics. Bring him back um, at any time. <laughs> but anyway, th this was a lot of fun. I, I haven't been a big fan of Doom Patrol for the last few iterations. Uh, last thing, time I think I really enjoyed it was, God, I can't remember who wrote it, but I just remember that fantastic Steve Lytle art from the Doom Patrol in the 90s. Uh, but like the Grant Morrison stuff where it got like super weird and out there with a living street as a character, a member of the new patrol, like that, that's just too, that's a bridge too far for me. I, I can't wrap my head around that. Like, how can you have a street that can't move or whatever, be a member of a superhero team? It doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me, but anyway, I did enjoy this uh, and the art was fantastic. So uh, how about you? what do you think? Yeah. I love Chris Burnham's art. It's really good. I found it, um, 
I thought it was a good setup issue. It, this was a really good introductory issue. It sets people up to the, it, it, it introduces us to the Doom Patrol. I mean, and, and that's what you want. And it's a good introduction. I mean, uh, those people who might um, might come in from watching the series, uh, they're gonna come in. You got Robot Man, Negative Man, Elasta Woman, uh, the, the, this new chief and this new beast, uh, the beast girl. Uh, the chief is of course, crazy Jane. I'm not really, I, I found it kind of comical that crazy Jane is, is leading the doom patrol because I mean, she's got all these multiple personalities. I found it funny. I mean, she's arguing with the Batman, you know, Batman's actually, is actually trying to say with a straight face that Arkham Asylum is a good, you know, is a, is a better place to, to house crazy people, uh, than, than any place else. I mean, I, I'm trying, to think here here's a quiz for you can you think of a single patient at arkham asylum that was ever cured you know the closest that you could maybe come to is harley quinn but if you think harley quinn's cured i got a bridge i could sell you in new york i mean come on nobody has been cured within the in the halls of arkham asylum and and so uh, it makes sense that the doom patrol I, I think it's good that dc doom patrol really is dc's x-men and there was a time early on before the X-Men got really super popular where the Doom Patrol was considered the better was the X-Men done right the X Doom Patrol is a really great concept and the idea that Doom Patrol has taken on all these people that may have been adversely affected by the Lazarus resin or part of Lazarus rain or whatever and that they're the de facto you know mutants of the DC universe I think that's good uh, you know in, you know I, I, I don't really care if it's kind of imitating the X-Men a little bit because good good it's if you're going to copy something copy something that's good and uh, so i'm looking forward to see what uh, dennis culver does with the concepts here i um i do think it's a little bit uh you know uh, uh it's it's kind of a little bit uh again a, a little bit tropey but i i kind of like the the mala generally mortis and uh and the brain getting into a battle and mala crunching on, on the brain's head uh, because we know that's leading to something. How is that going to lead into, how is that connected to Task Force X and the, or, and the, peacemaker, the peacemaker? How is he going to get involved here? So we've got three moving parts to this story and it's not very obvious how they're all going to come to a head. And I like it. I like it. This this is something different. It's it's got its own characters. It's it can have its own. It's not directly connected to other comic books in the DC universe, so it can legitimately have some fun and play with the characters without screwing up continuity, which is kind of my pet peeve. So I kind of like this, and I'm really interested to see where it's going. And I'm I'm prepared to give Dennis Culver a lot of rope on this. I just hope he doesn't hang himself. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, okay, up next, Tim Drake Robin. Uh, feels like a standalone story, to be honest. Um, starting off the new new arc, I guess. There's a guest artist. I don't know if he's taking over because it doesn't say guest art, but Riley Rosmo's been on it previously, but still written by Megan Fitzmartin. Serge Acuna is the artist for this, at least this issue. Uh, Lee Lafridge on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Basically, Tim Drake and Bernard go on a date. <laughs> Firefly shows up. Apparently, he's angry because nobody ever lets him dine at any of their restaurants you know maybe it's because they're worried you're going to set the place on fire dude um so he what does he do he turns around and proves them right by setting restaurants on fire meanwhile bernard's parents show up they have a little bit of a a tiff if you will obviously they're not happy with the choices bernard's making um so in that way it's a little bit relatable um we know and rocky and i both gave credit to bernard for you know realizing that 
and it seems like he's known for a long time that Tim Drake is Robin. And for as smart as Tim Drake is, the fact that he doesn't realize that there's no way he could fool his boyfriend that he's spent time with as both Tim Drake and as Robin, like, dude, you wear a little tiny domino mask and your voice is the same. Like, how could he not realize it to you? Um, so kind of interesting. Some seeds are planted here for some some storylines going forward. A lot of it uh, kind of interpersonal relationship stuff. There's very little actual hints of, of where the story's going for Tim Drake as Robin. Um, but again, it's only the first issue of the next, next arc, so we'll have to wait and see. Um, I enjoyed the Serge Acuna art. I don't know. You know, again, it's hard to tell based on where this might go for Tim Drake in the costume. So hard to say whether Acuna might be the long-term answer. Um, but it is a more traditional superhero style than what we get from, from Riley Rosmo. So yeah, I thought this issue was okay. It, it wasn't bad. It wasn't good. Probably average to be honest. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how it all plays out from here. So what are your thoughts? I actually had to, uh, this was the one where I was, I had the biggest worries about reviewing this particular comic because um, there is so much wrong with this comic. I don't know where to start. Uh, and um, boy, could I go on a rant. Aside from the fact that this is, this has to be one of the worst written comics in, in a very long time. Uh, th this is poorly paced. This is, I mean, at one point, Tim Drake, Tim Drake <laughs> and Bernard are actually walking away from the restaurant, which is on fire behind them as people are burning inside the building. And Bernard is talking about how heroic Tim Drake is, but eventually they end up having to go back. Sorry. <laughs> they end up having to go back because Tim Drake realizes, oh my God, Phobia was there. And Phobia is the reason why his parents, Bernard's parents spoke so badly to Bernard because Bernard is a victim. I mean, you got to remember that Bernard's been portrayed like the victim. Bernard has no self-esteem. He's got no self-worth. I'm afraid to, I know I'd, I'm, I'm afraid to go. It's dangerous to walk outside alone at night, but I got Tim to protect me. I can't make my own hotel. Uh, I can't make my own hotel. Uh, Restaurant reservations, I got Tim to do that. I, I always have Tim to protect me. I'm very insecure, but I've got Tim to show me the way. Uh, he's a stage five clinger, Bernard. Uh, this is a guy who's taken biology and chemistry in hopes of being a chef one day. Um, he's got... I. I'm, I'm, I'm so, I finally figured out why Tim is attracted to Bernard because that's one of the questions I'm going to get, this is very, one of the things that's bugged me about Bernard is what's the attraction that Tim has to Bernard? I can't figure this out. Now it's obvious to me that it has to be a, a sexual element. There's a, there's an attraction there, but there's nothing else. What else is there to like about Bernard? Now, the funny thing is about it is that Tim actually tries to come up with a reason why he might respect Bernard at the end. And he tells Bernard, well, you, 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 you stood up to your parents, uh, you, you're, you're a good person, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is Bernard is a, is a person who is in deep need of counseling. This guy is really screwed up in my mind. But you know what? Maybe Tim is too. And, and that's why these two get along so well. I'm still not clear why it's, it was never made clear why his parents... Uh, why Bernard left his parents. I'm assuming it's because he came out and they don't like his sexual orientation. I don't know. It's never overtly said. I'm guessing that's not really made clear. Um, and so there, there's even a scene where they go into the restaurant and as they get into the restaurant, Tim suddenly has to go to the bathroom and Tim walks away. And then Bernard actually says out loud to everyone else in the restaurant saying, enjoy your pee. 
This is actual dialogue in the comic book. This is this is cringy stuff. This is this is cringy. Suddenly, then Firefly shows up, like you said, attacks. And, and phobias around, you find out later, which causes Bernard's dad to say some really cruel things to Bernard, which, you know, you, you're left wondering, did he really mean that? Or is it because he's just a bigot in order to make Bernard look more like a victim because he's gay and maybe his parents don't like him because he's gay? Uh, and uh, it, it's all these mixed signals and these and then and then they leave. Tim runs away. He, he, he dresses up like Robin, then comes back, fights Firefly, goes back, changes back into Tim Drake, takes Bernard. They leave the restaurant while it's on fire. His parents are still in the burning building. And it's actually a scene. You can see them. You can see they're walking away from the restaurant with this with it burning behind them. <laughs> and, and, and then Bernard mentions to Tim. Uh, and, and Tim thinks, oh, oh, phobia. Oh, my God, it must be phobia must be there. So then they go back. They go back to the restaurant where naturally people are still inside, still burning. Their parents are still tied up. And, and so then then Tim dress goes back, dresses back up as Robin to fight, to fight them again. And it's just a mess. And then it ends. Uh, I mean, it ends nice. It ends with Bernard giving Tim this this necklace with the B on it, which uh, obviously stands for Bernard. So there's some nice moments here. So for the for those that are into their relationship, there's nice moments here that you'll get that. But honestly, I don't I I don't understand what Tim sees in Bernard really because Bernard is a very deeply insecure individual. And 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 to defend my and I know I'm on a rant here, but I want to defend my position here by saying this. I compare this to Jay Nakamura, John Kent's boyfriend. Now, Jay Nakamura, I've criticized him. I called him the pink-haired freak at one point. But I will say this about Jay Nakamura. Jay Nakamura is a hero. He's 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 uh, he's uh, he's hardworking. He's uh, passionate. He cares about. He's a, he's a freedom fighter. He's someone that you can respect, and he's he's shown his own agency and his gravitas. Bernard doesn't do that. Bernard has only been portrayed like a victim throughout this entire series, and um, thank God Fitzmartin had had him finally say that he knew that Tim Drake was Robin because Bernard has been an idiot for this long to wait to wait seven issues. To reveal that Bernard, finally this issue, it's revealed that Bernard knows that Tim Drake's Robin. Thank God, because at least he's not a complete moron. But um, in any event, I was just I was just astounded by this. Uh, but uh, uh, but I will say this people who are, you know, this series has been canceled. Uh, I'm not surprised. And I don't think anybody who's been reading it has been uh, surprised. And um, as I said, I. I wish I could be more polite on this uh, other than to say that um, I just I'm sorry for people who have been reading this because, you know, they're 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 they, they like the they like the message with the with the relationship and everything. But this is uh, I don't I, this just failed for me on multiple levels. And, uh, you know, um, but hey, that I'm, I'm done ranting now. OK, <laughs> tell, tell me. Sure? <laughs> You didn't like it. Yeah, uh, yeah, it it wasn't my cup of tea, no. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, I think we've been on the opposite sides of this book since the beginning, so. Yeah. I find it interesting like I you know, and I can't uh I, I can't really argue that the pacing was was great um cuz it yeah, it was a little but I I get I guess I'm kind of looking at it as a bigger picture of what 
Fitzmartin is trying to do with the series. Uh, and I appreciate that a lot, but yeah, I mean, it, it has its growing pains. I wish, I wish it hadn't been canceled because I, I think it just needs a little longer to find its footing, but it's tough. It's tough these days with kind of the editorial assistance you get, or maybe I should say non-assistance. Um, like I think a good editor on that book, on this book could, could make it a lot better, but Anyway, let's move on. Action Comics number 1053. Main story written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art by Rafa Sandoval. Colors by Matt Herms. Letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, and then we have the second story that's written by uh, Dan Jurgens. The art in that one is by Lee Weeks. Uh, we've got Elizabeth Brightweiser on the colors and Rob Lee on the letters. And then uh, the final Power Girl story written by Leah Williams. Marguerite Savage is the artist, letter Becca Carey. So uh, what were your thoughts on the main story? We saw last time Metallo taking some some Blue Earther um, activists, I guess we'll say. Terrorists might be a better word. Um, and <laughs> and kind of using it, his abilities to infect them with kryptonite and turn them into drones, so to speak. We see the fallout of that right at the beginning of the story as they're attacking John, uh, John Henry Iron. So what were your thoughts? Yeah, uh, writer Philip uh, Kennedy Johnson, I think he, he's doing a good job developing this story. Uh, Metallo is uh, he's he's more powered up because of the the because Lex Luthor utilized the War World tech and through the combination of the Orphan Box and some other War World tech, he Metallo's more powerful than ever and actually created his own little mini gang of Metallos, which he's used to uh, attack the Superman family. Uh, Metallo is under the impression. Uh, is under the impression that um, Superman had has is is has done something to his sister, and that's because of uh, Lex what Lex Luthor's machinations. And um, somebody else seems to be in control of Metallo here, and I, I it, even Lex Luthor seems to be uh, unaware of what's going on because Superman confronts Lex Luthor in this issue, telling him, "Look, what did you do to Metallo? And what's this about his sister? And then, and you know, who's the voice that Metallo is talking to? And then Lex Lex realized, wait a minute, you said Metallo is talking to someone, so, because obviously Metallo's not talking to Lex." Uh, and so if Metallo's not talking to Lex, who is he talking to? So somebody is 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 manipulating Metallo and and it's and they're doing it in the with in the vision of of Tracy, his his sister. And uh, so clearly something is going on here that uh, we're not really sure exactly what's at play, exactly how Metallo's being manipulated, but I'm I'm definitely very curious because he's very very powerful and you know he did a lot of uh, he did he injured uh, he injured uh, uh, Connor Kent in this issue uh, became injured I think it was uh, I think it was uh, uh, no it was a Kara I believe yeah. it was right Kara yeah. Supergirl was uh, badly injured and. I like some of the uh, uh, John Kent has a good talk with the twins. John Kent, you can tell John Kent is a little bit, maybe a little bit jealous of the of the of the super twins of uh, Ossel and Othel or Otho and Ossel uh, because they're they're younger and he they're at the age where, where John Kent was, where he was robbed of those years because he was on the in the volcano with with Ultraman, and um, and it's. Um, 
it's interesting to see, you know, they have an interesting talk about the puzzle box because on War World, Superman built a puzzle box uh, for uh, for Ortho and Ossol and they still have it. And John, John Kent remembers the one that his dad made him. And so there were some really nice character moments there. But but uh, it's funny because Ossol confronts John and says to John, you know, you know, why are you upset? And because they, they sense that maybe John, John's a little upset. So there's some good character moments there that uh, Kennedy Johnson does a good job on. And I thought this issue really, you know, I thought it worked very well. And I'm, I'm, I'm really invested in the story that uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson is telling. So uh, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, we, we know, if you listen to my chat with, Philip Kennedy last time he was on, you know, he mentioned the fact that um, Joshua Williamson was was extensively using Luther, and so he couldn't use him as much as he might have wanted otherwise. So we we sort of knew that whoever was masquerading as Luther or maybe Luther as AI was really behind everything. So that interaction between him him and Superman was really interesting. Uh, I also really like how he's following through with the dynamics of the the Superman family, both in terms of their interpersonal stuff. You touched on it. John can't, he's a good kid, right? Like he can't be raised by Superman and Lois Lane and not be a good kid, but he's also human, you know, he's has those feelings of jealousy, but he's aware enough to recognize them, you know, and he doesn't hold them like, you know, against the twins. He's like, it's just, I missed out on so many things that you're getting to have. So there's a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of envy, but he recognizes those negative feelings for what they are. He tries not to let them uh, affect him, but how can it not, right? How can he not look at them they're of the age that he was when he was um you know when he was kidnapped or or held hostage or however you want to put it by ultraman (laughs) so i enjoy that but i also enjoy the the interpersonal dynamics of the superhero uh superman hero team you see how upset uh connor is by kara being damaged you see uh, or or uh, injured damaged whatever you want to put it uh, even Keenan Kong, you know, he's ready to to start exacting revenge, and it gives uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson the the context, the opportunity to give uh, give us a great Superman moment. You know, when Keenan is like, uh, you know, we should kill Metallo um, because you know we're risking our lives, and he would kill somebody as uh, you know as noble as John Henry Irons or Supergirl, and Superman's like. Uh, you know, we, we have to do the best that we can because if we don't, then these people die as villains and redeeming villains, redeeming people who've made mistakes or poor choices. That's how we save the world. Like a great Superman moment, great Superman line from Philip Kennedy Johnson. Probably, honestly, the line that he's written that explains his philosophy on Superman the best of anything I've read so far. And, uh, and he truly gets who Superman is. That line really shows that. So I enjoyed this. I enjoyed this issue. Um, the art for me is not really working as well as it could. Um, you know, again, when I said Rafa Sandoval, when I heard Rafa Sandoval is going to be the artist on this, I was like, oh, I'm fantastic. You know, he had such a great run, Green Lantern run with Robert Venditti, but this just doesn't feel up to his same style. Uh, his, it's, it's, it feels a little darker, a little more muddy, um, not quite as clean or dynamic. That being said, the final page where, uh, Osel is, uh, or Otho rather, is uh, in her sort of super family outfit and, and attacking the Blue Earthers. Uh, obviously, not a good choice, and obviously, an impetuous choice, kind of one you would expect from a tween, 
to be honest. Um, you know, not not a good look though. Um, not a good look for her in her choice, but a great look from Rafa Sandoval in that splash page. Uh, just look, she just looks powerful and cool. So really, really awesome. Um, the second story, I felt like it dragged a little bit. Honestly, we got a lot of Lloyd, the, uh, the doom breaker. I'm kind of with Rocky on this that I, I don't really feel like he's the best character, uh, derivative of doomsday feels a little bit cliched and tropey. Um, we did get more of the the princess and uh, and John Kent, a young John Kent, and it's sort of what I was saying last time about who who knows if this princess is in the right or if the people pursuing her are in the right. John clearly wants to play the role of hero, savior, protector, whatever you want to put it. But is he actually in the right? Uh, we don't know. Um, but much like Otho in the first story, he he sort of takes matters into his own hands and, and looks before he leaps. So showing his um, his inexperience as a, a young person with powers as well. So how that all is going to play out, I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But uh, where the second story really shines is the Lee Weeks art, man. Lee Weeks is one of the best artists, one of the best storytellers working in comics today. His, his art is just fantastic. It's so nuanced. Um, so I, I – for no other reason than his art is fantastic. Would I recommend this story? Like I don't need another reason. The story's interesting enough, even though, like I said, it feels a little bit cliche so far. Um, but man, read this for the art, if nothing else. So what were your thoughts on uh, story number two here? Uh, I did. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, Dan Jurgen's writing. I, I've enjoyed it. And, and I'm not a, not a huge fan of Doombreaker, but I'm getting a lot of, and a lot of enjoyment out of young John Kent uh, interacting with this uh, Princess Cleana of Plune <laughs> as they're being returned to their, her homeworld to stand. She's being returned to the, the, her homeworld to stand trial for treason. And of course, John Kent will have none of it. And of course, wreaks havoc on this alien ship. And it ends up uh, at the end on the final page, crashing down towards the earth which i'm sure next issue will be rescued by his dad <laughs> who will show up to save the day but i really like the i like the idea of john kent i mean he's sort of smack dab in the middle of things and he inter, you know and she and this princess uh, gliana sort of figures out that oh my god you're the son of superman so you're you're like a prince <laughs> i kind of like that it's like yeah the prince and everything else as a matter of fact i'd really like to see john kent and maybe an older princess gliana as john's older now with gliana returning I think uh, I think that that's what I love about these types of stories is if you if we can expand upon the years when when John was younger, uh, there's there's potential for good pre for new present day stories with with new characters that are new to us that we've just been introduced with the with the past stories interacting with John Kent like like we're getting here. So I I, I really enjoy it and Lee Weeks are like I said is just fantastic. Uh, there's a, I just love how he draws Superman. He draws such a mature looking sort of cool awesome. Uh, almost like a, a movie star quality to how he draws Superman in, in that black suit and standing out in the field as he's looking on the standing on the alien ship, look, wondering where his son is. He can't find him, but he tells Lois, "Don't worry, he's going to be okay. I'll find him." And there's something in the way I imagine Superman saying that. Yeah, I know. I feel everything's going to be okay too. And there's a, there's an innocence and a vibrancy about a young John Kent uh, who's got an who's who's overconfident. John Kent should be more scared. Than he is, but he's not. I actually think the Princess Gliana, a 
appreciates the, the, the dilemma that they're in more than John Kent does. John has an over amount of confidence about in his own abilities, which is manifest, which is exemplified by the fact that he, he tries to take out the entire ship by himself and he ends up doing more harm than good. Literally, it's going to be crashing into the earth, but will likely be stopped by his father. But anyways, it's just really great. I, I really, really wish we'd get an extended story that uh, I would, I mean, selfishly, I wish that was the main story. I wish that they had his own comic. I really do wish that Dan Jurgens and Lee Weeks would be given their own comic book uh, and with a full 30, 30, if I'm going to be paying three nine four ninety nine or five ninety nine, give me thirty six or or more pages of just Dan Jurgens and Lee Weeks, if I could have my way, because I'm I quite enjoyed it. Well, what about the uh, the final story? I know you haven't necessarily well, been the biggest fan of giving um, Karen. I guess we shouldn't even call her Karen Power Girl. Power Girl. Uh, mental powers um, <laughs> and Marguerite Savage on art. Lee Williams. Uh, writing so what, what were your uh, thoughts here well uh this continues the story look i'm not I, I made no bones about it that um this is something i have to get used to okay so i've uh i, I don't want to sound like a broken record i i don't like the idea of power girl as a telepath but you know it's established now but i want to focus on i'm going to try to focus on the positive here um lee williams is really trying to to put power girl on a, on a on a different path and one of the things that lee williams is doing that i think well, I have some mixed feelings about. I'm gonna being positive about it. It, I, I, I hope I asked this question in the two previous issues, and that is, what the hell does Power Girl have to do with the Superman family? Well, it would appear that Power Girl has also asked herself that same question, and so has Lee Williams. And the fact is, it is an issue with Power Girl. She has been. Uh, it's been. Or it was established, even though it's not been in continuity. Apparently, Superman outside has as John Kent. She tells uh, tells Power Girl in this issue, you know, my dad has invited you to family functions. You're the one that decided you didn't want to come. And it's and Power Girl reveals it's because she's just going to, you know, she's just going to, she's got feelings of abandonment. And she's just going to lose her family. And she's, it's been, it's the reason why Power Girl is not close to the Superman family is apparently because of Power Girl. It's not because the invitation wasn't there. And I guess that's fine. It's not, that's not really true given what we know of continuity because but whatever, I'll go with it. You know, if uh, if that's the case, if Power Girl always felt outside the the Kalal family, or outs then why is she wearing a new suit that has the family crest and everything? So there must be a part of uh, of Power Girl that wants to be part of the Superman family because she is kind of wearing their coat of arms, and so there must be a part of her where, despite what she's saying, there's a I. I think her costume says one thing that she wants to be part of the Superman family, but her actions betray, betray what she's actually wearing. So I, I kind of like that in a way it shows the tension and the interworkings of what power girls struggling with, you know, wanting to be part of the family, but not allowing herself to, because she feels like she's from another earth and she's always felt a little bit off. Power girl gets a name change here. Now, uh, she was always Karen, uh, Karen Starr, uh, and she, Power Girl, very interestingly, she thinks that while she, she calls her, her previous, uh, Superboy, John Kent here, keeps referring to her as, as, as Karen, she says, don't call me that, that was just basically a name that I made up, it was just the identity I created, so, 
it was an identity that I thought was fairly serious. She had it for, for well over a decade, I, I believe. She became a billionaire on the before she went back off to Earth, too. She, uh, I thought it was more than just a name, but apparently it wasn't. And um, she ends up giving herself a new name with John Kent. John Kent, I'll give Lee Williams credit, John, uh, Lee Williams portrays John Kent here as a very, just like his father, very kind and compassionate. John is very uh, compassionate and kind to to Paige here, to to to, to Power Girl, uh, and he, uh, uh, oh, uh, the the character, what is it, o Owen or what the character's name? Uh, Omen, the character Omen, the redheaded character Omen, who's the other te telepath teaching Power Girl how to use her telepathy. She calls her PG like, or PJ calls her Peej for, for short. And apparently Power Girl doesn't like being called Karen, but she liked being called Peej. So John Kent said, well, instead of calling you Peej, I'll call you Paige as if turning a page, turning, turning a new leaf, uh, turning a page on your new life. So Power Girl likes that. So she goes by Paige and then. So all the, there's a lot of dialogue here again. Too much talking heads for my liking. But there's a bunch of computer code in John Ken's head that has to be unscrambled, and uh, it ends up that uh, it ends up that Johnny Sorrow is the one that has been intentionally manipulating the minds of Kara, uh, Supergirl, and John Kent, all with the idea of trying to bring some sort of attack on Power Girl for reasons that we don't know, but it's ultimately revealed that Johnny Sorrow, the JS, does stand for Johnny Sorrow, uh, which uh, was guessed by one of the people that commented on on our site. And um, I just killed a spider. Um, in any event, um, not bad. Uh, Marie, uh, Marie, uh, Marguerite Sauvage, I thought the art here was... Uh, it had to grow on me a bit, but she, she she has to visually draw what's going on in the mind of John Kent, and and um, I I don't actually think it works as well as I, I wish it did. I'm again I'm I'm not a fan of the telepathy. I really really don't like these adventures playing out on a psychological plane. I think artistically it's too difficult to to draw something in an interesting manner and. Um, I still find this to be the most boring of all the stories, and I really hope it picks up at some point. Uh, uh, but it's 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 at least mildly interesting. So I, I don't know. What do you think about the Power Girl story? Yeah, it's kind of growing on me, to be honest. Um, just because it's such a unique take, right? Like, because I, I I sort of agree with you. Like, man, mental powers, Power Girl, whatever, but. At the end of the day, she is so derivative in terms of um, her basic look, uh, you know, so derivative of Supergirl and her power set, so derivative, right? I mean, yeah, they gave her the boob window. A lot of times she's drawn with, you know, large breasts, whatever. And that seems like that is sort of going away and she's being drawn with more realistic proportions, which makes her even less unique. Um and I'm not saying necessarily it's a bad thing because certainly, you know, we just don't want, we don't want it to be exploitive, but like what, what's the unique part of power girl? She's just a Supergirl clone. So giving her these powers um, and maybe changing her name or whatever, it's an interesting take. Um, there's a little part of me that's like, yeah, but you're, you're discounting continuity in a way, but that's, that's a small 
part of me because, um, you know, like we were saying at the top, you, you have to evolve these characters. And I think there's a, a lot to Power Girl, but it, only a few creators seem to get it, right? Like Jimmy and Amanda's run I love um, uh, way more than I like their Power or their uh, Harley Quinn run. Um, but those are few and far between. And oftentimes I feel like the reason she's neglected, the reason we don't have more stories with her is because she is so – derivative of Supergirl, you know? It's like, I can't ever really remember there being a, a Supergirl and a Power Girl in the same book, like in the same book on the same team. Like, why would you, you know? They're the same. Um, but what Leah Williams is doing here does feel different. So I'll give, I give her a lot of credit for trying something different. Whether or not it'll work in the end remains to be seen. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. As far as the art, um, I, I kind of go back and forth. I kind of have mixed feelings about that as well. Um, Marguerite Savage art from, you know, one panel to the next, look at one particular image, look at the colors. They're all beautiful. They're gorgeous. Um, but her transitions from panel to panel, the actual storytelling part of it, she, it's not the strongest, you know, I've, I, I talked about it when we reviewed the future state, uh, was it Superwoman of Tomorrow? I think it was called. Yeah. Um, how the images look, it looked like images from a children's book, you know, where you, you have a big chunk of text and a picture that goes with that text. And then the next page, another chunk of text and a picture that goes, the pictures don't necessarily tell, need to tell a story from one page to the next. They do here. And don't get me wrong. This is head and shoulders better than what that's been. Um, and this is the longest I, I've ever read of her now that we're on the third issue, ever read of her doing sequentials. Uh, in a row. So, you know, maybe she wants to flex that muscle. She is getting better, but it's still not up to the level of, of some other artists. So maybe it's not fair for me to, to make that comparison, but I can't help but notice that about her art when I, when I see it, because again, it's so gorgeous, especially in color work from one image to the next. Um, but yeah, the transitions could be stronger. So uh, all right. Up next, we have Lazarus Planet Revenge of the Gods number two from writer G. Willow Wilson. Art is by Cian Torme and Emmanuel Lupacchino. Colors by Jordi Belair. Letters by Pat Brosso. We get Shazam drawn into this conflict. We see him meet up with Yara Floor. Um, he's he's fighting. Uh, does it say where? I guess Fawcett City. Um, Philadelphia. Then, he's in Philadelphia. And initially he's in Philadelphia and then he makes his way to Washington because yeah, he, he's yeah, told to go to Washington yeah. to meet somebody. Yeah, right. So he's, yeah, you're right. He's in Philly. He's there. He's fighting, you know, with these monsters that the gods have sent fighting against them alongside Mary Marvel. Um, when he's transforms back into Billy because he feels drawn to, to Washington DC. That's where he meets up with Yara floor. Um, and eventually he's going to be pulled into to this conflict and go to Olympus to fight against uh, the gods. And when he's there, there's the wizard Shazam, the one that gave him his powers. We know he's been infected by the Lazarus rain. Apparently he's a villain now. And he basically says he's going to take Billy's powers. So you would think Billy would turn back into a kid, but no, instead it's, he's like, he's still Shazam in the adult body, just all emaciated. And, what will become of Shazam and Wonder Woman? Well, I'll find out in Lazarus Planet Revenge of the Gods number three. So uh, it's a fast-paced issue. There is quite a bit of action. 
Um, I, I feel, man, seeing Tormey's art is usually so dynamic, um, but maybe it's a combination of him with Emmanuel uh, Lupacchino, whose art is also usually really good. But the, together, the, yeah, it didn't, didn't work for me. And may, maybe it was the muted colors, um, but the art was only okay for me. And it's Jordy Blair on colors, right? I mean, you get three super talented creators and you would think, yeah, it's good. they're going to knock it out of the park. But I don't know. The art just felt incon inconsistent to me. It felt – it's so dark. Um, and for this type of story, you know, fighting against gods, I want it to be bright and vibrant and, and pop off the page. But it just doesn't. It's almost like the Yara floor effect. Anything she's in just feels kind of meh. So I don't know. At the end of the day, like we said when we reviewed the first issue of Lazarus Planet, Revenge of the Gods, can't Lazarus Planet just be over already? Ugh. I'm done with it. But anyway, what, what were your thoughts? Well, uh, you know, uh, I've actually – this has potential. I mean, I ripped apart the first uh, issue here uh, of Lazarus, you know, Planet Revenge of the Gods. But, I mean, uh, look, I mean, the idea uh, – whatever, the idea of all these gods getting all pissed off and they're, they, they want revenge on humanity and they want to – whatever, they want to enslave humanity to make them fear them and then convert the fear into worship. And because fear is equivalent to worship in their mind and that'll empower them up. And it's not just the Greek gods, but it's all the gods. That's not a whatever. OK, I'll go with that now. But I'm going to go on another mini rant here. Now, my rant now on this issue is going to be about Shazam. Now, I guess my first question is, how old's Billy Batson? Now, uh, I, I'm not going to fault writer J. Willow Wilson for this. Because I don't know, did somebody tell her that, that Billy Batson's 10 years old? How old is Billy Batson in this issue? I have no idea. I get the impression by the way he's talking because he's so impressed to see, oh my God, there's giants. Giants, actual giants. He actually looks like he could pass for a six-year-old in this one panel. How old is Billy Batson? <laughs> also, now... Now, and he also Mary, Mary Marvel is his older sister, and and he and Mary and, and she's smarter than he is. Uh, he is he is. I'll just say it. Billy Batson is. If he's ten years old, he's he's acting his age. If he's seventeen years old, he's an idiot. He's the dumbest seventeen-year-old out there. Uh, Shazam has no. Where's the wisdom of Solomon in Shazam? Shazam is humiliated by Yara Flora, who, by the way, is a B-I-T-C-H in this issue. Complete B-I-T-C-H. Billy Batson's told to go, he, he, the hooded figure that's, that, that showed up on Themyscira, the hooded, the hooded figure that saved Wonder Woman on the, on the cliffs of Promethea, the hooded figure shows up mysteriously in, uh, while, Billy, while Billy Batson is making his way to... Uh, Washington, where he's supposed to meet somebody. He's totally supposed to meet somebody. He doesn't know who it is, but for some reason, when 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 Billy when when Shazam sees uh, Yara Floor, he assumes that it's Yara Floor he's supposed to meet. And uh, Yara Floor, it's so hilarious. He goes, "I can't believe, I can't believe it." Hoodie guy was right. You found me, and she she very arrogantly says, "Have we met?" Uh, and he goes, "No, I had a vision." And and uh, she uh, she goes, "I." Yara at one point says to him, I don't even know your real name. You're a guy in a suit who looks like he's more used to playing a hero than actually being one. <laughs> really? This coming from Yara Floor. Now, 
does Yara Flor has she never met Shazam? Okay, I don't. Maybe she hasn't met Shazam. I guess I guess she wasn't around. I thought she, I thought they met during Dark Crisis. But that aside, does she really not know of Shazam? Is this the first time she's met Shazam? Because it certainly seems that way, and she's a complete bitch to to him. And and Billy is you know Billy actually and he, and he's so. He's got no self-esteem, no no confidence. He's Shazam for God's sakes. What's he? He goes, oh, that's fair. Uh, but I'm stronger than I look. My powers come through the gods. I can help. I mean, he's just he's so emasculated, and, and it's just what is it about men when they're written in these titles of Wonder Woman titles that they're just completely emasculated and they have no agency of their own? It's actually comical already. And so Yara Flor takes him. Even even Hera thinks Shazam is a joke. The wizard chose Billy for a reason. He was worthy. Shazam is powerful. Shazam is more powerful than Black Adam. Has defeated Black Adam on multiple occasions. Shazam is Shazam has the soul of a child and the wisdom of a god. He's not to be trifled with, but he's made to be a joke in this issue. And that just that just really drives me crazy. And Yara Floor is written as if she's got more experience than 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 Shazam. Give me a break. And 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 of course complaining that she's called Wonder Girl. Um anyways, I'm uh, but let me tell you what the positive is. Okay. Aside from that, you know, the wizard shows up, the, the wizard shows up and he strips uh Shazam of his powers. Now, I'm not sure how that is because I, with Zeus dead, how can Shazam have the power of Zeus if Zeus was killed by Hera? Because the Z in Shazam stands for Zeus. Zeus is dead. How can Shazam still have the power of Zeus if Zeus is dead? I don't know. There's so many questions about how the Shazam powers work. I don't know. How can the wizard, I didn't think the wizard could unilaterally take the powers back. But apparently he can. Is that because of the Lazarus rain affected the wizard? I don't know. So I got some questions here. It's a little bit uh, wonky, but, um, you know, I've, that's my rant. I just want a little bit more empowerment for, for Billy Batson. I, I think that uh, the wisdom of Solomon should have, uh, maybe he was stripped of the wisdom of Solomon, but uh, uh, I don't know. What, what, what do you think of it? Uh, you? Yeah, I mean... I don't disagree. Billy comes across as very young and very inexperienced, which sh shouldn't be a thing, but yet it is. And it's almost like it's, it's the inexperience that he shows the inexperience that, that he has in the story as it's written. It's almost like it's there to kind of prop up Yara floor. That doesn't, that doesn't work for me. Yara floor hasn't earned any like respect or experience or what have you, but that's kind of what, how it feels. So I, honestly, I'm just ready for this Lazarus planet and storyline to be over and really we're not even talking about Lazarus planet anymore the fact that it's Lazarus planet is sort of tangential really the only tie-in is the fact that the wizard Shazam does you know is evil is the bad guy now because uh, of the you know infection by the Lazarus magic or whatever you want to call it really mm -hmm. this is t we're talking about ending this this Wonder Woman story Hera blah 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 that's gone on far far too long uh, we both know that it has so <laughs> uh, anyway, let's move on. Uh, up next, Punchline, the Gotham game, number six from writers Tinny Howard and Blake Howard, Gleb Melnikoff and Max Rainer, the artist, Luis Guerrero on colors, Becca Carey on letters. Yes, this is our third Tinny Howard uh, issue this week, right? Like we had Harley Quinn and, oh no, I guess we had Catwoman was last week. So yeah. anyway, se second, second um, Tinny Howard uh, issue. So, 
Um, and this is the end, this is the end, right? And it doesn't really feel like an end. And we're told that uh, punchline of the Royal Flush Gang will return in the pages of Catwoman. So how do I feel about it overall? I guess at the end of the day, it sort of worked. Um, punchline does have a confrontation with the Joker, which I feel gives context to their relationship. Punchline does feel more like her, kind of her own character as opposed to being a, a Joker derivative, the way that she started out. Um, and so I, that was a good scene. I think it was necessary. I still don't care for the Joker. I still don't care for Punchline, but she is her own character. Um, she's not a Harley Quinn ripoff. She's not a Joker ripoff. Doesn't mean I like her any better. Um, but I think it was a good choice by Tinny to uh, have her head up the Royal Flush Gang. It, it just kind of works. Um, I still would rather her just go away and, and never come back, but some people seem to like her. Um, and at the end of the day, she actually didn't have a lot of real estate in the last couple of issues, um, but shows up a little bit more here. So that might be why I, ultimately I thought the series worked because I actually didn't get a lot of punchline uh, in the last two issues. Uh, like I said, this one with the way everything wraps up, we get a little bit more of her, but yeah, glad to see her kind of disappear for a while. Um, at the end of the day, it just seemed that the, the reason this story uh, or series existed was to, to put her in her kind of as head of the Royal Flush Gang, which again, I think really works quite well, actually. Um, and to set up this confrontation that she has with the Joker to kind of give us a status on what their relationship is. So uh, I think that all works. But as far as any of the heroes having agency in this series, yeah, it doesn't really happen, but I suppose that's to be expected. The series is called Punchline. Not Batman, blah, 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 whatever. And, you know, thank God for that. Um, but yeah, Punchline, it, it's not like she wins the day, but you really wouldn't say that she loses either. So like I said, if you're looking for this story to have a nice, neat ending, everything wrapped up, either Punchline wins or Punchline loses. That's not really what happens. It, it's just kind of Punchline is, you know, to borrow a, a line from Tom King. Um, but yeah, it, it the series has set her up as the head of the Royal Flush Gang and shown us what her relationship with the Joker is. Where she goes from here, we'll have to see. Um, can she actually work? Can she Can she become sort of a classic enough or formidable enough or important enough villain to be included in Batman's rogues gallery? Right. That's, that's what we're talking about at the end of the day. And what's interesting, she's never really gone up against Batman, at least not one-on-one. -on -one. And now that she's head of the Royal Flush Gang, don't really think that she will. Um, but that, but I, I kind of think that she can't because, and again, this goes back to my opinion on the Joker. If Batman were real and the Joker would, was real, Batman would beat him like 30 seconds, end of story, Joker never sees the light of day again. Punchline, it might take 10 seconds, you know? Um, so she's going to need that to kind of role of being the puppet master, <laughs> being behind the scenes, kind of manipulating things. So yeah, she particularly good character, quality character. Eh, I don't think so. So my doubts whether or not she can be, become a classic Batman's rogue villain, um, and I and I'm fine with that because I'm not really a fan of the character. But I will say that I do wish that um, Batman. I can't think of like when you think about classic Batman villains, none of them are female except for Catwoman. But Catwoman's not even really a villain anymore. So yeah, I mean I I do think that Batman's rogues villains could use more more females just to you know, make it more diverse and interesting, different dynamic, but no, I, I, and I'm, and to be clear, and I've said this before, I'm not a fan of 
Catwoman as anything but a villain. Um, I, I don't care for the whole Bruce Selina relationship at all. Um, but that's just me. I guess Poison Ivy, maybe you could say. Yeah. She's not really a villain anymore either. So, uh. God, if they try to turn Punchline into an anti-hero or an outright hero, I, 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 that might be the bridge too far where I'm just like, no, nope, throw up my hands and stop reading DC. Because, yeah, she's just an awful human being. So, anyway, what were your thoughts on the series or this issue? Uh, what what really uh, – I thought this issue – where the aspect of this issue that didn't work for me was joke. This was not the Joker. There's the, the Joker doesn't talk like this. There's no way that the Joker would talk in the manner in which he talked to punchline, the way he tolerated her insolence, the way he, uh, the way he taught, you know, the back talk. Uh, he, that, that's not the Joker. Um, you know, uh, I remember that when the Joker, when the Joker and Harley talked to each other, the, the Joker the Joker is a control freak. The the Joker. I'm not even sure why did Joker save her. Now that might sink. Now if the Joker, what motive would the? I mean, the Joker just showed up out of nowhere. That was never explained. He just showed up. Okay, so now he's saving Punchline. Why? Okay, well I'm gonna I'm gonna assume why is he saving Punchline? Because Punchline was his girlfriend. Apparently not. I mean, they should be having they. Frankly, they should be having sex here or something. This should be a, a deeply unhealthy relationship. Punchline is talking to Joker as if they had something resembling a normal relationship of some kind. It, 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 that's not what that should be. This was Joker always has an agenda. He always has an agenda. Even when he'd come back into Harley's life, it was always to manipulate her or maybe to torment her or he had some ulterior motive. He's got none here other than just a uh, uh, save Punchline and send her on her way. Also, I don't see the Joker being happy that Punchline is arguably now more popular than him. Punchline has a following in Gotham that even Batman commented on that, you know, there's a lot of people, a small percentage of people, a lot of people follow Punchline, but it's a small people relative to the general population of of, uh, of Gotham City. That's what Batman says. And uh, it ends uh, showing the picture of uh, Selena Kyle and the detective that has figured out that, that Selena Kyle is not guilty of, of the murder. She shouldn't be in prison and that there's going to be a confrontation between Catwoman and Punchline. That's uh, That seems to be what this is leading to. But I just... I, I didn't like the portrayal of the Joker here, and I've I got, you know, unfortunately, punchline to me is just now she's just another villain. That unfortunately, the Joker was, in my view, badly used as as nothing but a prop to create punchline. Because punchline, I mean, are, are you telling me that punchline did she actually feel she had an equal relationship with the Joker? That's kind of the impression you get when you hear punchline talk about it and she's being cocky about it and she's putting the knife to the throat of the Joker. Seriously? Come on. Come on. Like, I mean, these writers and, 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 and I hate to say this, but it seems a lot of these women writers are so desperate to give agency to these female characters. I'm sorry, but you're, we're talking about abusive, crazy, psychotic men. You're no match for a psychotic man. Punchline Joker should have like given her a couple of black eyes, abused her, put her in her place. Uh, I mean, reminded her of her failures. Uh, he should be pissed off at her. He should be joking around with her. He should be toying with her. He should, I mean, the, like that to me is all this was done. The, 
you know, there's even a reference here that the, to the, the the Joker of uh, the 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 man who stopped laughing. You know, Punchline talks about the last time she saw the Joker, and the Joker says that wasn't me, suggesting it was the other one, which actually adds to the confusion because we've been trying to figure out what the hell's going on with the with the Rosenberg story of Joker, the man who stopped laughing, to begin with. This actually adds to that confusion. Um, uh, but I guess she's referring to the, the the initial bank robbery that led to. That led that led to that story beginning of the 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 man of the the man who stopped laughing. But in any event, I was just I, I was I was disappointed in that. I really wanted Punchline to stand out and be uh, because Punchline exists for one reason or ought to exist for only one reason, and that is as as uh, as as the what Harley Quinn could have been. She should be an evil, evil Harley Quinn as opposed to just another, she's just another chick who wants to be a, a mafioso. And that's just so disappointing to me. It's a missed opportunity. But, yeah, I don't disagree with you. Um, I don't know how to make her, but again, I mean, I thought that when they when they brought her out, brought her around, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but then again, you know, it, it, had they made her into a female psychotic you know, murderer. That's not interesting to me either. So I don't know. At the end of the day, I just don't think she's a great, she's a great character. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, let's see. Up next, we have Waller versus Wildstorm. Number one from writers, Spencer Ackerman and Evan Narcisse. Jesus Moreno gives us some fantastic art. Vicente Fuentes does the inks on pages 21 through 31. Micah Tay on colors, uh, letters from Dave Sharp. I feel like I need to read this again because it feels dense to me. It's 35 pages, I think. Three pages, 32 pages. And I feel like I don't have a good handle on it. Um, And for it being a black label, what's not out of continuity is what a scumbag Amanda Waller is. Um, (laughs) Why she wants to take out the Wildstorm universe. Uh, Wildstorm characters, I don't know. Um, Lois comes across as lacking agency here. If there's any nitpick I have with the story, it's that. Um, but yeah, other than that, it just, it feels like a lot of setup to me, like a lot of setup. And I sort of struggled with it a little bit because it's a lot of, a, a lot of it is talking head, right? It's either Amanda Waller um, talking to somebody or it's Lois Lane talking to somebody. Um, and, and it, Again, credit to Jesus Moreno for keeping it visually interesting because this is very much a setup talking head issue. Um, so we get hints as to you know what's going on, hints to action, um, but we're told about the action that's already happened. We don't get to see any of the action or we get hints of action to come. And it is a fantastic final page, a big uh, splash page with Deathstroke, which you know I'd love to see Deathstroke go up against some – some of the Wildstorm characters. So maybe that will go down, but yeah, right now it's too soon to say if this will work or not um, because it's all set up. It's all set up. And, you know, 32 pages of setup is a lot. It's a lot. It's kind of tough at times. Um, And yeah, when you don't get Lois Lane's characterization, right. um, That's going to, that's going to bug me. And I don't feel like, like Lois has been around for decades. It's not, she's not that hard of a character to understand or to get right. Um, I just like, yeah, her, the choices in dialogue for Lois and, and her, uh, Lois's like lack of confidence. Eh, I don't know. I mean, I get it. It's black label. It's out of continuity. This isn't the Lois I know, but, well, uh, 
know, give me, give me my, give me my care, give me, give me my recognizable character as being recognizable. So that can be my gateway in, right? Because I feel like this is black label. And other than Amanda Waller acting like Amanda Waller, everybody else I'm sort of feeling out like, okay, what is this version of the character like? And I certainly don't identify with Amanda Waller, thank God. Um, but she's the only one that's acting like 100% re in a recognizable fashion. So, um, again, this might be great. It's just too too soon to say. So too, too, too soon for me to know. Uh, but I'm a big fan of Jesus Moreno and the art is uh, fantastic. The color, works are, the color work is great too from uh, Mike Ateo, which not a surprise. He's impressed me on Shazam and some other – uh, some other work that he's done in the past. So um, how about you? Did you, did you enjoy this? I enjoyed it a little bit more than you. I will say this. I, I want to say it's worth noting that, uh, that the, uh, the writer, one of the co-writers, Spencer Ackerman is an American journalist and writer uh, focusing primarily on national security. He began his career at the new, new Republic in 2002 before writing for the wire, the guardian and the daily beast. So he, he is an American journalist. And so, uh, and you can see that in the writing because this story takes place in the 1980s. And this is right when Lois is at the beginning of her journalist career. She's literally a newbie reporter and she's just making a name for herself, which might account perhaps Jace for one of the things that you yeah. recognized, uh, could account for her, her lack of experience. And cause I sort of, picked up on that as well on, on and Lois herself even scolded herself at one point when she's uh, when she's interviewing Jackson King uh, who is a member of Checkmate and he's complaining that Amanda Waller betrayed him and is taking over Checkmate and and uh manipulating Stormwatch and taking over Checkmate. And this, so this is the beginning of what may be, we're guessing this is called after all Waller versus Wildstorm. Uh, we've got Checkmate, we've got Stormwatch and we got Wildstorm. So, and this is in the early 80s. And so what I like about this is we're going, we're, we're getting a younger Lois Lane. We don't even know if we're going to get a Superman. Superman arguably maybe isn't even on the scene yet. Where's Clark Kent? Are we going to be seeing Clark Kent in this series? I don't know. We're going to be seeing a young Jimmy Olsen. I don't know. Uh, we got Steve Lombard of all things, who's her editor, uh, her foreign correspondent editor. And, but you know, and so, there's a lot of things that I'm really kind of excited about, but for future issues, because as you said, there was a lot of talking heads in this issues in this issue, but to, uh, I'm going to give Spencer Ackerman and I know it's, uh, I know it's co-written here, Spencer Ackerman and Yvonne Narcisse. Uh, I think probably whenever, um, this reminds me a little bit, a lot of, uh, for example, when I, I think of Jason, a Jason Bourne movie, there's a lot of character moments. There's a lot of talking in a Jason Bourne movie. Yes, there's a lot of action, but the reason why it's a three hour movie is that there's a lot of talking too in espionage thrillers. There's a lot of those moments, character moments where they're sitting, some of the best espionage movies are involved people just sitting around talking to each other. And that actually happens quite a bit here with Lois Lane going around and interviewing many many people and trying to get to the bottom of things and Jackson King you know that's her that's her big scoop and uh, I uh, I think Jackson King you know he is, he's got a ridiculous looking outfit but uh, there's there is there's some there's definitely a story here that I'm curious to see where it leads because I'd really like to see if this is taking place in a different continuity Man, this would be. I hope they have some fun because this is this is actually an Amanda Waller who apparently was always a bitch. She's just she's still a little bit overweight even when she was younger, and I kind of like that. You know, she you can still you can still see she's just a, a just 
a little bit, she's just as much manipulator in the past when she's manipulating uh, Jackson King here. Uh, and, you know, he, he's so angry with her, but she, she knows what she's doing. And she's, she's uh, clearly, there's more at play here. And, and again, I don't know where the wild storm is going to come into play exactly how this is going to play out, but I'm really curious to see what's going to happen here. Because there's Lois Lane, can Superman be far behind? Maybe Superman won't, won't show up. Maybe Clark Kent won't. But uh, I'm actually really curious. The potential for this, I, you know, and Spencer Ackerman to me, is a, he's an unknown quantity, you know, in the espionage game. He's the wild card, you know. And so maybe uh, his comment with Yvonne Narcisse... I, I'm looking forward to this. This is an underwhelming debut issue, but I like to think this is, to use the checkmate analogy, analogy this is putting the chess pieces on the board, so to speak. And so uh, I'm, I'm prepared to definitely give it another issue to see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, I was excited to see how it crossed over as well. Um, didn't realize it was going to be set back at Waller's beginning of her career, but as you said, once a Waller, always a Waller. Um, come back <laughs> from, from the beginning. Uh, and I, and, you know, 100%, if Waller gets her due, if Waller is killed in this, if Waller is <laughs> – I wouldn't say murdered. If, if Waller is uh, – if Waller gets what she deserves, you know, if she's taken out, if she's taken out as she so deserves to be, um, then I'll – this will be one of my favorite series, much like uh, – what, what was the, <laughs> the series where she got killed early on? The Joker. Oh, oh that was – uh, uh, Blaze, right? Suicide Squad Blaze? No, it wasn't. It wasn't Blaze. That was the one where they, the those guys had the, the powers, and when one of them died, they right. Got but I thought she died in that issue. Died in that series too. No, it was the one where it was the one where the Joker got the got the button, right? The Suicide Squad. Oh, right, right. It was right. like J Joker. Uh, get Joker. Suicide. It's called Get Joker. Get Joker. That get was Joker. it. Get Joker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't like by any means a, a strong, technically put together comic or whatever. But I loved it because Amanda Waller got killed. <laughs> 100%. It's all good. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, and and finally, uh, Detective Comics number one thousand seventy. Uh, this is uh, the latest in Rom V's run on Batman. Uh, we have Stefano Raphael as the artist. If that name sounds familiar, he's the one that did uh, the recently concluded uh, GCPD Blue Wall. Adriana Lucas does colors. Ariana Mare on letters. Um, you know, Raphael's art art worked really, really well in that GCPD Blue Wall series because there was so much realism in that. There's not a lot of realism here, so the art doesn't work as well. But he's still a great storyteller. Um, as far as the, the story goes, I guess the big revelation here is that Ra's al Ghul was once like a lieutenant uh, for the Orgums. Um, one of their their trusted servants. There, there were four of them that were that are specifically named by uh, by Talia Al Ghul. Actually, she's the one that's telling Bruce about about this. Um, other than that, there's not really much else that happens in this issue. To be honest with you, it sort of drags out. Um, I I can't. I, I'm not going to say anything more than that. You can go back and listen to my thoughts on previous issues. I still have all those same thoughts. This is uh, derivative, kind of boring. I've been done before in terms of, hey, let's go back and add in a bunch of history to Gotham that we didn't know about previously. Um, yeah, there's just nothing compelling here. 
Um, I guess the one other thing I'll mention is this character Arclight shows up, who showed up in one of or other of the uh, Lazarus Planet one shots. We know that he's a member of a team called the Vigil, and they're going to be getting a, their own series coming later this year in May. Um, he's more intriguing to me in the few pages he shows up than than Batman is, or Oracle, or any, anyone else. You know, talking about. Um, Batman needing to stop what's going on with the, the orgums. And it is interesting to hear Barbara Gordon say, well, why don't you just stop it? And Arclight says, well, because Gotham's under Batman's protection, we know Batman has rules and we want to, we can respect that if not necessarily abide by it. Batman needs to stop them or we will fix this or we will is so, I mean, sort of tangentially threatening Batman. That's that takes some cojones there vigil. So how powerful, uh, is this team how, or, or Arclight, you know, himself that, that he feels he can sort of tell Batman what to do. So kind of interesting um, f- for me, at least the last few years, a lot of the teams that have been introduced, new teams that have been introduced, new characters haven't really worked that well, like not to the point where they stick, right? Like you can think of any number of them, except you can't really think of any number of them because they haven't really stuck. It's been a long time since DC's, introduced um, some characters outside of the Batman books like Ghostmaker or the aforementioned punchline that really have stuck and, and have caught on. So maybe the vigil are, are those characters who knows, but then, you know, the other side of the coin, like I was saying earlier, DC already has more characters than they can possibly do justice to in terms of uh, having series and telling stories. So, uh, so who knows, but it was a highlight of the issue, which to be honest, uh, it's kind of filled with lowlights, <laughs> at least for me. I'm, I'm, I'm more than ready for this detective run to be over. Um, and you know, Ram V, somebody whose work I really admire and enjoy most of the time, but his work on Batman is just not working for me. It's morose. It's boring. Just not working. Um, I, I'm sorry to say. Anyway, what did you think? Did you enjoy it more than I did? Uh Slightly more. Yeah, it actually uh, I, I would agree that it's sort of dragged on. This hasn't been a very well paced uh, story and uh, it's been it's it has been a little bit more rose. And uh, but uh, I will say that when I when I go back and I reread it, you know, the pieces do kind of come together, but it's never a, it's not a. I can't say it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a particularly enjoyable reread. It's, it's there's something about it that that feels plodding to me. But having said that, uh, I'm gonna w- when I summarize it. Here's the thing: sometimes when I summarize a comic, I truly believe I make it sound better than it is. And I'm gonna summarize this comic, and I'm gonna make it sound better than it actually is. Then you'll have an experience reading it straight up. In my opinion, basically, our, the Orgums, uh, they, they visited Gotham City in the 1800s, 1700s, and uh, Arzen Orgum, who is Bruce Wayne's age, Arzen Orgum is now in Gotham City, and Arzen Orgum's father, every Orgum, when they're born, uh, when, they, when they come of age, they have to go on a quest to save a city or a thing, and uh, the original King Orgum, King, Ar- uh, King Orgum, he went on a quest and uh, he went on a quest with four servants, uh, uh, Gale, Tenclaw, Shavlot Urhad, uh, Neang, Modram, all these names, and Razogal. Razogal betrays him and he never completed his quest and it involved Gotham City. So he couldn't he couldn't save Gotham City back in the day because of Razogal. Razogal betrayed him. And so now Arzen Orgum, I believe, wants to 
to redeem his father's failure or his, his great, great grandfather's failure to save Gotham, to save Gotham City. How are they going to save Gotham? Well, apparently all the subway systems and all the all the caverns underneath Gotham City, uh, you can think of them as neural pathways. And just like a brain. And uh, this is what the vigil was trying to tell Oracle. That you can actually draw a head. This is, by the way, I think this is really stupid. But whatever. <laughs> you can draw a head around, you can take out a map of Gotham City and you can draw a head on it. And then all the streets are neural pathways. And, and apparently there's a thalamus machine. A machine that when activated can actually somehow create... Um, um, m m give this almost give the city some kind of sentience and so the city itself becomes alive and can control the people in the city and this is kind of what the asthma is the asthma this green fluid mist controls the citizens in conjunction with this thalamus machine this meaning will you can take over the will of the people of gotham and you can control it and you can have a crime-free city and so this thalamus machine which they're setting up in the in the in the depths of gotham city this is this is going to be ours and Orkham's gift to Gotham, and he's going to fulfill and redeem his his the the Orgham family by finally gifting Gotham with this thalamus machine. That's what I got out of this. And on the surface, that's kind of cool, and it's kind of silly too, because it's all premised on kind of nonsense. Because as if, I mean, maybe all the caverns underneath Gotham City, maybe they're just caverns and they're not actually neural pathways. I mean, really? But you're going to create a machine that somehow magically makes them all into like a glorified brain? That's just is that's too out there for me, and that's just nonsense. I, I just I that's, but I guess you got to sort of swallow that to get it. And, um, uh, but, but I mean, I think I kind of get the gist of it. What I don't get, and once again, you didn't bring up the backup, so I'll, I'll do the segue into the backup. Um, uh, I have honestly no idea. <laughs> I have no idea what this, I don't know what happened in the backup. The backup here shows Mr. Freeze sort of trying to revive somebody who's frozen. I'm not sure if. Was it or it's, I thought at first maybe it was Oracle because it looked to be in a wheelchair. No, it's the doc. It's the doctor from Arkham City: New World Order, the one that was um, really friends with the ten, you know, the ten-eyed <laughs> man and, and all that. And she was in the backup last issue. The what, backup the Joy? You mean Doctor Joy? Yeah, yeah. But I thought she sure was African American. This one is uh, white. This one is uh, well, maybe, maybe yeah maybe I'm getting a few but she she was in she you know she was in the last backup she's been in previous Batman stories worked at Arkham Asylum is a criminal psychologist what have you um, Freeze is, seems to be obsessed with her trying to experiment on her to, to figure out what the cold how the cold how his cryogenics and what have you can damage people's brains because it can't be that his beloved Nora who he finally managed to revive, doesn't love him. It can't be that. If she's turned her back on him, it's only because the cryogenics that kept her in suspended animation for so long must have damaged her brain. She must have brain damage. There's no way that Nora could ever not love Freeze. So th that was the premise last time, and he was experimenting on this woman. Um, and then for some reason that's unexplained, 
uh, she manifests or this character named Earworm manifests itself and is talking to her and kind of keeping her sane throughout these experiments, which could also be described as torturous. Um, and when things go too far, Freeze calls himself an imbecile and gets all mad and throws a tantrum because he thinks he's accidentally frozen her and killed her. Uh, and he goes running off. Earworm shows up and kind of thaws her out and saves her, I guess. Uh, it's kind of hard to follow. Um, Casper Wingard's art is a bit kind of ethereal, and so that makes it kind of hard to follow as well. Yeah. And Ty Spurrier's never been a writer who um, – well, You described, super, yeah, you described the last backup though. That's not this backup. No, that is this backup. No, this well, the, this guy's Sorrow. He's not. He's, his name is Sorrow. This guy who shows up, he says, "Call me Sorrow." No, that, keep go, no, keep going. You're not. You haven't got to the part where the earworm guy shows up yet. He shows up after that. The Sorrow guy. I don't. I don't know what's going on with the Sorrow guy. But if you, if you keep going, That's it before. Uh, I mean, it, she starts. She starts thawing out right at the. Oh yeah, yeah. Before you're right. Before. Um, but yeah, his name is Sorrow. I'm. I'm here to help. I don't. I don't know if he's the avatar of um, of Earworm or, or what have you. Like, that's not right. explained at all. Who the sorrow yeah. guy is uh, at all. But when he yeah. gets when she gets thought out, that's Earworm. Um, so yeah. But I was going to say other, other than if you recall, Cy Spurrier did that like two issue Justice League fill in, yeah. Um, in between Bendis's run and Joshua Williamson killing them all, killing you know we put that death of Justice League seventy five blah blah blah. No one died. Yeah. Um, but Cy Spurrier, he did a two-issue Justice League, and it was like the most sort of comic book – standard comic book superhero thing that he's ever done. There was no weirdness. There was no crazy art. Um, yeah. I, it almost didn't seem like it was Cy Spurrier, Cy Spurrier doing it. This is Cy Spurrier. Weird, out there, can't really understand what's going on. Yeah. I, and he's I, on Flash, so yay. I'm, I just – you know, in fairness, this is I, – I, I, I feel sorry – I, I feel sorrow. <laughs> I feel sorry for Simon Spurrier because I, I I can't imagine that he intends this story to be this confusing because I, I I don't know what's going on. I don't I don't uh, I know what doctor you're talking about. I I know that Ram V has said in interviews that he is he's using the he's using that 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 storyline that that you've talked about with the Doctor Joy whatever her name is from that what was that ten I don't even know what that the 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 word. I can't remember the name of the series, but I mean, he World they, Order. the one new world order, the Arkham yeah. city, new world order, Arkham world, new world order. Yeah. Okay. Um, Dan Waters, this, Dan Waters. Right. But you know, but that was, uh, this is really, really confusing. And Simon Spurrier has, is just not, I mean, if this is the way my theory is when he's writing flash, like Simon Spurrier should have, this should not be this difficult to understand what's going on here and relate this to the main narrative. It's just, there's, it's nothing. I mean, it's confusing and the art doesn't do it any justice. I really seriously hope that the flash is, is nothing even remotely close to this because this were, this is extremely worrisome. This is extremely worrisome. I mean, the main narrative is, 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 can be, challenging enough but this backup is is not doing the series any favors whatsoever so i i really hope the flash is is much more straightforward than whatever he's trying to do with the backups here in detective comics because man 
this this pads the narrative and adds to the price point of the comic and it's not it's not doing this series any favors at all i mean it, it would actually be better if it didn't exist because i'd frankly because it, 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 it's adding nothing to the narrative that i can that i can see anyways but at least you understand more, better what's going on than me but whatever yeah <laughs> i mean i i don't know it's it's kind of, it's yeah it's tough. It's tough. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to badmouth yeah. anybody's work, but yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't get. Yeah, I mean, I understand what's going on. It's just unfortunately, it's just not very, not very good or interesting. So, man, I can't. I, yeah, I can't remember the last time I was enjoying Detective Comics this little. Um, but Action Comics is back to being really good. That's so. right. Can you, and can you recall the last time Action and Detective were both good? Maybe yeah, at the beginning of rebirth, maybe at the beginning of rebirth, right? Yep. When Jurgens was back on action and James Tynan was doing the Bat Family stuff in Detective, that was pretty solid. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, all right, so that does it for the individual books that we're going to talk about. Uh, also, DC Ruby R W B Y issue two is out. Uh, Blue Beetle Graduation Day has its Spanish edition, which is selling really, really well. It's, the Spanish edition is outselling the regular edition. Uh, which is fantastic. Uh, there's also some trades this week from DC. We've got Task Force Z Volume 2, What's Eating You? Uh, obviously, that concludes the uh, Matthew Rosenberg uh, final six issues of that series. Naomi Season 2 has a hardcover, collecting Naomi Season 2, 1 through 6 from Bendis and Walker, Jamal Campbell Art. Rocky was a huge fan of that series, if I recall. Uh, <laughs> That's sarcasm. Maybe, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, sarcasm. Uh, I Am Batman, Volume 2, Welcome to New York, collects I Am Batman numbers 6 through 10. Uh, Rocky and I both felt, after the first five issues being in Gotham, getting Jace Fox out of Gotham, given, uh, putting him in New York, giving him a lot more agency, just improved that series tremendously. So I, I, we actually do recommend that. And then uh, Infinite Frontier, which collects uh, one of the lead-up series to Dark Crisis, even though Dark Crisis really kind of was a wah-wah. Um, zero through six of Infinite Frontier and Infinite Frontier Secret Files are, are contained here. Um, I found the lead, like looking back with uh, the, the knowledge of how Dark Crisis basically did nothing, um, it's kind of easy to say now that the actual lead-up series, multiple, there were multiple, lead-up series to uh, Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths were actually better and more entertaining. And I, I kind of wish that a lot of the stuff that were, was in these prelude series was paid off in a better fashion, in a, in a more meaningful fashion, I guess you'd say, than we actually got. Uh, but regardless, check it out uh, if you're so inclined. Like I said, it does collect all six issues of Infinite Frontier, or seven issues really because you get a zero all the way up through six and the uh, infinite frontier secret files. So those are the coll collections that are out this week from DC uh, book of the week, Rocky. What do you got? Oh man. Uh, let me see. That's a tough one. Um, well, you know, I hadn't really put much thought into that. I would have to go with, um, Hmm, man. I think I'm, I'm going to have to go with uh, – I, I was – overall, I was underwhelmed all across the board. But, uh, well, you know what? No, I'm going to I'm gonna go with Tom King's uh, Gotham City Year One. Uh, year, uh, yeah. year one. I, I have to go with that. I, and I know sometimes we pick the same ones, man, but I uh, – that was yeah, the one that's that – 
Yeah. There's no other. I mean, I, I thought that Dark Knights of Steel, my favorite issue so far. I thought Doom Patrol was a great start. Uh, Stargirl has been pretty solid throughout, but it's not really a contest this week. Uh, Hidden yeah. Shoulders above everything else. Uh, I kind of feel similar about this week uh, as I did the week that the final issue of Human Target came out, also yeah. by Tom King. It's just this sta- stands out as so much better than everything else that came out this week. And there were some other good comics. Yeah, This was a great comic. This was a great series. Yeah. It was great art. It was impactful. It was emotional. It It, it said something. Um, and it was a celebration of crime noir, which I know Tom is a huge fan of. Yeah. And as an uh, the overall series, as an homage to the uh, the genre of crime noir, is a masterpiece. So I can't, you know, regardless, like you said, sometimes I'll kind of change mine if I'm mm. vacillating between two, or I'll choose, you know, something else. But I can't, I can't choose in good conscience. I can't choose anything else. But Gotham yeah. City Year One, absolutely but- fantastic. Uh, but if I was to pick something in the mainstream DC universe, I would go with Action Comics. I would go with Action Comics as a runner-up. Okay, that's solid. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, very, very good issue of Action as well. So yeah. anyway, that's going to do it, everybody. Again, apologies uh, for it coming out a few days late. Totally 100% on me. Um, but good thing I'm not traveling uh, for the foreseeable future, at least probably not until May. Uh, for work so we should be back to the regular schedule starting next week appreciate everybody's support as always don't forget if you're listening to us on the audio only head over to youtube rocky's channel comic space boom exclamation point subscribe ring the notification bell leave some comments um you know what to do uh really helps out with the algorithm and us getting views which then leads to more access and uh all that kind of good stuff so appreciate that if you did stumble across us on youtube you're curious about the other audio content from the comic source just go to wherever you get your podcast do a search for the comic source and subscribe so that's going to do it for this episode everybody we know it was a long one 14 books so we appreciate you sticking with us to the end and we'll talk to you next time catch you later you can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.